So I'm very happy that all of you are here today. This topic is very dear to my heart. Uh, I am I am a recovering um, recovering person who did uh, in my past did not love the house that ego built. I was trying to suppress it, squash it, make it better. I got caught in self-improvement and realized at some point that what I was trying to improve and trying to squash, trying to criticize, uh, in fact, in an ultimate fact, uh, did not exist at all. So that view about myself, sometimes called ego, that often comes with a felt sense, uh, a feeling sense, that view of myself, the, the thoughts about myself, the, um, yeah, all kinds of notions about what I am that I took to be myself. Uh, fortunately, over the course of my practice, I was able to see uh, those things were not exactly real. So right now, before we even begin this day officially, I want you to just for a moment suspend any thought about yourself. Let your last thought about yourself fade away and before the next one arises, just sense what you are or who you are on present evidence. In, o- in other words, what and who you are without reference to the past or to the future. And perhaps you could tell me what it is that you discover about yourself after your last thought has passed and before the next one arises. Anyone willing to say? Please. I feel that I'm an animal just like anyone else and just trying to make it and enjoy the moment. You're an animal trying to make it enjoy the moment. Okay, but even the idea of an animal is based on memory. So we're trying to find out for a moment what you are beyond your memory, beyond concepts, what your direct experience is, please. Being. Being, okay, any, any others. But, you know, that's cl- animals very close to the being. A breath. A breath. I found it impossible to suspend. <laughs> impossible to suspend views about yourself. How about now? <laughs> what is that which you deny, right? Please. I, I felt there was nothing. Okay, there was. You felt that there was nothing. Anyone else? Please, in the back. Just feeling. Yes. Please. Torn. Torn. Hmm. So was that a fe- a, f- a feeling sense of being torn? Uh-huh. And how about now, after the last feeling torn and before the next one? 
Giddy, okay. Now, now we're on to something. A little giddy. Please. Calmness. Exactly. Well, what, um, what I would like to point out today, and one of the ways that we can, in light of the title, one of the ways that we can love the house that Ego built is to, is to recognize what we are what our immediate and direct experience is beyond just our, what we call our ego. And I'd like to suggest right from the beginning that you, what you will discover when you are simply present, completely yourself, not necessarily an idea of yourself, but if you l- just let yourself be you will find that at the root of everything, before you can think, at the root of everything, there is peace or calm. That your natural state is calm. That everything that you've ever thought about yourself that has tied you into knots is secondhand. It's a case of mistaken identity. Because from beginningless time, human beings have identified with their ideas. They have identified with their bodies, sensations, identified with moods, identified with, with the, wi- the worldly winds that blow through our life, with praise, with blame, with gain, with loss, with fame, with shame, Did I get to pleasure and pain yet? (laughs) We've identified with currents of our life that are ever-changing, ever-unreliable, and in some way are based on fleeting experience. And to the degree that we have identified with that, created a sense of ourself that's based on those things, And the only way to have a sense of identity based on those conditions that are always changing is to to frame ourselves as as an idea, as an identity view, as a view about ourselves. I am a successful person. I'm a failure. I am great. I'm not so great. I am too high. I'm too low. I'm too poor, I'm wealthy, but afraid that I'm going to lose it. These ideas reflect our momentary, our momentary circumstances or conditions. And an identity that is built on momentary conditions or circumstances is an identity that is extremely vulnerable, extremely insecure. Now, is there anything about us that is not insecure? <laughs> okay, our, our body, that's our number one identity. I'm kind of doing the end at the beginning today. And, and I'm doing this because I, I want to 
I want to give some fuel to why it is that we practice meditation and how the greatest way that we can love the house that ego builds is to shift our identity from that whole series of changing conditions and thoughts, feelings, to the capacity to notice all of that. From being bound up in ideas about ourselves to knowing. To be able to have as our basis of security not something that uh, is available one moment and then gone the next, but it is available any moment. And what is that that is available every moment? What is available every moment? Breath. Stream of consciousness. Awareness. The Buddha. You know, I don't know if you, come, if you come to Spirit Rock, you know about Buddha Dharma, the teachings of the Buddha. Remember, there was no Buddhism at the time of the Buddha. It was Buddha Dharma. There was this person's Dharma, that person's Dharma. But what was unique about the Buddha Dharma is he said you could basically rely on a few things and you would learn everything you need to know about what's, what, we, what is possible for us to experience our heart's release from its usual preoccupations, from its usual confusion and struggle. There are three things that you could rely on. One is what he called the Buddha. And he didn't mean uh, go to and pray to the, to the historical figure, draw some inspiration from the historical figure, but Buddha just means awake, means aware. So Buddha as a great poet from the Japanese Zen tradition says, Buddha is your own mind. And the way goes nowhere. So don't look for anything but that. So you can put your trust in this wakefulness that lives in you. So if I ask all of you right now at the beginning of this day to stop being aware, stop it. What happens if I say stop being aware? Perhaps you can recognize in that moment of saying that, that being aware is primary. It is something that is completely natural to us. It is uncreated. It is unconstructed. It is, as some would describe, it is deathless, unconditioned. The very awareness through which you're perceiving. Most of the time, that sense of the Buddha, that wakefulness that lives in us, is, uh, is we, are not, we are not in touch with it. We are dreaming. We're lost in our imagination. Memories. We're lost in our ideas. So we meditate to give some to focus that ever-available, ever-present wakefulness and clarity, to focus it in the reality of the present moment and not have it be so untrained and and scattered, but, but actually both recognize that we are aware and then develop a very strong habit of orienting our our attention. So attention comes from this awareness. Organizing our attention around 
what's happening in the life of the present moment. So basically, the Buddha said three things. Be aware, that's a Buddha. The second thing you can rely on is the Dharma. Dharma means nature, truth, the way things are. In the most immediate and simple way, that means whatever's happening right now. Am I aware? Are you aware right now? Are you aware? What are you aware of? If you're aware and you know what you're aware of, that's the Buddha and the Dharma. It doesn't get any higher than that. You'll notice that if you're aware of something, just that moment of simple awareness, you don't have to, in that moment of simple awareness, you're not lost in an identity. You're not lost in the house that ego built. You're just present. That makes sense? So you can rely on that. And it tends to create a sense of stability, of calm, a sense of having your attention in the same location as your life, where it's actually being lived. Because the identity view, the view about ourselves, the, the way that we think about ourselves is most often bound up in the past, which is gone. The future, which is unborn, just a thought in the present moment, past also a thought in the present moment called memory. And it's bound up in our, our ideas about the present and even that, the ideas of the present and the, and the direct experience of the present are two different things. So as you may be able to sense, we are orienting ourselves in order to love the house that ego built, in order to understand and see the way that the ego or identity functions in our lives, we have to first and foremost wake up. I brought a, f- a wonderful little passage, if I can find it in here. If you'd just be a little patient. It's from the spiritual teacher, Anthony DeMello. And it's entitled, On Waking Up. Last year on Spanish television, I heard a story about this gentleman who knocks on his son's door. Jaime, he says, wake up. Jaime answers, I don't want to get up, Papa. The father shouts, get up, you have to go to school. Jaime says, I don't want to go to school. Why not, asks the father. Three reasons, says Jaime. First, because it's so dull. Second, the kids tease me. And third, I hate school. And father says, well, I'm going to give you three reasons why you must go to school. First, because it is your duty. Second, because you are 45 years old. (laughs) And third, because you are the headmaster. (laughs) Wake up, wake up. Grown up, you're too big to be asleep. Wake up. Stop playing with your toys. 
So this is really the invitation of our practice is to wake up out of the ideas, the dreams about ourselves to the very simple reality of the present moment. And it actually gives us both the light of attention and the stability to then notice all of the ways, moment by moment, we construct, innocently construct an identity based on what we're experiencing in a moment, how a simple experience gets elaborated upon and out of that elaboration comes a view about ourselves, a view that I am so-and-so and it's I'm either doing great or I'm not doing great, I'm enough or not enough, I'm too much. And all of that we begin to see is what the Buddha called Sakaya Ditti. It's a view. It is a view, and as a view, it is not something that has absolute reality. It is flimsy. And views, because they are flimsy, if you build your life, if you build your house around a view, you will feel insecure, anxious. If somebody tells you, if you have the view about yourself, I am wonderful, the first person that tells you you're not wonderful, what happens? You crumble in the face of praise, or you inflate by praise, you deflate by blame. If you get, organize your life around an identity around success, when you lose something or you fail at something, you crash. So the Buddha's teaching allows you to step out of that stream of those worldly winds to touch into a well-being, a calm, as the person said, a calm, a peace, and a well-being that does not depend on circumstances, does not depend on the worldly winds of praise and blame and gain and loss, fame and shame, pleasure and pain. And that that freedom, that, um, that openness, that wakefulness, being awake, is none other than the natural state of your own being. And out of that natural state of aware presence, that's one of the ways of talking about it, call it sati, uh, mahasati, great awareness, or the great... Um, the great lu- lucid state, the great state of being lucidly aware. Your natu- that's your natural place. Out of that state of being lucidly aware, aware of what your mind is doing, aware of what you're, how you're creating yourself. Out of that state of aware presence comes all of the heart qualities of love, affection, compassion, when that, when that attention meets pain, when you meet your own pain, when you may meet your own painful circumstances, which there will be, which there are. When that same wakeful presence meets painful circumstances, it expresses itself as, just to bring back the title, of loving and caring for the house that ego built. And of course, when we meet the, the joyful situations of our life, uh, 
uh, that aware presence responds with a kind of sympathetic joy, able to join with ourselves, join with others in their, in their good fortune. And with that, also with that wakeful presence that is your natural state, if it is made strong, it becomes clear that that wakeful presence is imbued with wisdom and balance that allows you to meet in your life your own and others' joys and sorrows without losing your seat. Being able to sit right in the middle of life, to be stable, to find a a security from bondage, as it's sometimes talked about. And this is ultimately completely natural to you to be able to do this, but we've mostly been seeking our stability through trying to construct a better identity. So I'm trying to point out right from the beginning of the day that the happiest you ever are in your life is when you're not busy being an identity. When you're just present, doing what you're doing when you're doing it, but in the flow of life, wakefully present, and that we don't really need to... to, um, all of us have identity views. This is part of our developmental process. We all have um, narcissism, way that from when we're young, if we're lucky, we have a way that we were told that we are special. But those, any kind of narcissism, whether it's negative narcissism or inflated narcissism, All narcissism is ultimately unreliable. And the insecurity that comes from being, uh, from tethering our identity to the unreliable uh, often creates so much tension in our life. So we will attempt today to love ourselves up for our inherent vulnerability, to be kind to ourselves, to be attentive to how it is that we... um, lose touch with this essential aware presence, essential freedom, essential peace, as the Tibetans call it, natural great peace. How we lose touch with that and how, how we can regain, how we can reclaim that heritage and then be able to relate to ourselves with much more kindness. Does that seem clear or are we, are we off on some... Please, you want to say something? If the ego is wrapped up in delusions of grandeur, uh, something I should be doing, yes? So, is that the same thing as narcissism? Or is that different? Uh, I, you know, I appreciate the question. I don't really, you know, there are probably many different translations for narcissism, so I don't want to get into defining it too much other than just the sense of, of our um, specialness. A sense of, you know, I'm, I'm great, and what it, you know, the sense of I'm somebody. 
So it's sometimes called ego, sometimes called narcissism. It can be, there's healthy narcissism. You know, you, a sense of self-respect is a kind of saying, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm worthy. But unworthy is also a form of narcissism. So it's, whether it's grandiose or very, we build an identity around being reflected by others and saying, you know, you're, you're great or you're not so great. And, and it may be dependent on some kind of talent you have, creativity, or your, um, your family of origin, your, um, your class, your race, your passion, any number of things. That our sense of identity, our sense of narcissism builds around that. And it's an important developmental process. Everyone needs it. And those who don't have a well-developed narcissism end up spending their whole life searching for it. But whatever it is, that whatever your view is of yourself is just a view. It doesn't doesn't have, um, it cannot ultimately give you security and satisfaction. Please. <laughs> a theory question. So what you're saying is that our our natural condition is is the that awareness, the calm that goes with it, etc. So what I'm wondering is um why is that the hardest place for us to be in that case? Is there something wrong with the way we're what's, what's why is why is just aware presence the hardest place to be? Great question. Why, why do we have to be here today? <laughs> well, you know, the Tibetans have a wonderful teaching about, they call it the four faults in Tibetan Buddhism. Four faults why we don't recognize what our natural um, capacity is, our natural freedom. And they say, and the way they describe it is it's, um, the first fault is it's too close the whole identity is, is oriented toward, just think about yourself. Most of your thoughts have been about this little picture of yourself in your mind that of somebody that came from the past that's passing through the present on the way to the future. Does that seem reasonable? And the present is, turns into, in that view of reality which is just a view, because you've never really left the present, ever. <laughs> what you call the past was, were present moments. So that view tends to have, it turns the, our experience of the present into a place that we're, our, where our, the orientation of our identity is to, I call it the obsession with what's next or the obsession with what happened before. We tend to fixate on the past or the, or the imagined future, neither of which actually exist in truth. And to the extent that, that um, the idea about myself 
is oriented and the aim and the sense of security and freedom and happiness is oriented toward that future, I'm constantly telling myself, I can't find it right here. That I have to wait. I have to hope. I have to reach the end of the rainbow before I can find relief. So in my mind, I've created a person who's going to the future and may or may not find what I'm looking for. And to the degree that I don't know whether I will find what I'm looking for in the future. Are you with me? To the, gr- to the degree that I don't know, I'm going to feel anxious. And then, because I don't exactly know how to deal with feeling anxious, disembodied, lost, having lost touch with the living present, I don't know how to deal with my body in this state of suspended happiness. I go further into my mental proliferation. I live more and more and more in imagined time and, and lose more and more contact with the life of the present moment. And the more I live in the imagined past and how I was, how things used to be, whatever I got stuck in, that kind of fixation tends to um, depress the energetic system and I become just as equally disembodied. There's a beautiful poem that I share a lot from the, the Sufi poet Hafez. He's an ecstatic poet. And he says, what do... His poem is called Stop Being So Religious. He says, what do people who are sad have in common? It seems they have all built a shrine to the past and often go there to do a strange wail and worship. What is the beginning of happiness? It's to stop being so religious like that. And then the, I, I wrote a second verse myself. Some of you have heard it before. What do people who are worried and anxious have in common? It seems they have all built a shrine to the future and often go there to do a strange wail and worry. What is the beginning of happiness? It's to stop being so religious like that. So why we have a hard time being here is just habit. It's habit of orienting ourselves to this idea that I'm somebody that's coming from the past on my way to the future and forgetting the fact that I am only and always an unfolding experience of present of of present time and and that's why the the teachings of awakening of awakening our aware presence is sometimes called an open secret it's right here but we we're busy looking somewhere else one of my teachers said uh, you need the past and thoughts to suffer You don't need anything to be free. So anyway, the first fault, it's too close. (laughs) The second, when you're aware, undefined by past and future, it's too vast. It's too vast. It doesn't fit into our usual conceptual framework. That's the second fault. The third fault, it's too wonderful. 
we can't accommodate the joy of, of, of such a live, aware presence. And the fourth one, they say, again, this is not my list, this is just from the Tibetan tradition. The fourth one is it's too easy. We can't believe that all we have to do is, is wake up, is get out of bed, realize that we are the headmaster. That you, as Thich Nhat Hanh put it, you who are the richest person on earth, who've been going around begging for a living, stop being the destitute child, come home, reclaim your heritage. So that's what the meditation practice does. We start to sense that in spite of whatever situation we are involved in in our life, whatever has happened in the past or whatever is happening will happen in the future present moments, that in the midst of it, we each at our, at our root, in the simple reality of the present moment, that there's, there's peace, there's ease, there's a happiness that is available to us that's not dependent on conditions or circumstances. And it's very easily overlooked. And it's wondrous. And it's vast. And it's easy. But it takes practice. And it takes practice to, to orient ourselves once again to this living present and then to stabilize that, uh, that conditioned, have our conditioned mind, the habits of mind oriented much more to, to here than to some imagined future that never arrives because time is always now. So I see a few nods of <laughs> understanding. So I think that's enough words for right now. Did that speak to your question or no? <laughs> oh, I didn't answer it. Then phrase it in a way that I can understand. It's just ha- it's habit. That's that was my answer. The habit. Okay, I, I, I'd like to answer that question as well. I don't know the exact answer, but my speculation is that how did that habit form? It's because One is because part of our human nature, part of our human, um, part of our heart is that we love ourselves. We, we truly love ourselves and almost everything we do, even the things that cause us harm, we're doing for the purpose of trying to bring some relief. To our, to our upset. And even though this natural great peace is available, when you do orient yourself to real time, you will also confront, if you are born, if you are born, you will confront difficult experiences. You will conf- I feel like I sound like Bernie Sanders for some reason. <laughs> In my own mind, I'm hearing Bernie. <laughs> it's so sad. If you are born, I you know I don't know if you've ever heard Wiley's di- or read the Wiley's dictionary. The definition of birth, the leading cause of death. I'm, I'm gonna. I'm still gonna answer this question. Hang. Hang. Hang loose. 
I will just add a little bit to that definition. Definition of birth. The leading cause, and this is not original. This is the, the Buddha's teaching. That's why a lot of people are here. The leading the um, birth, if you're born, it is the leading cause of um, birth, sickness, aging, dying, sometimes not wanting what you get, sometimes not getting what you want, separation, loss, wounded pride. All manner of difficult experiences present themselves if you are born. And out of love for ourselves, we try to find solutions. We try to accommodate that. And what, because most of us do not know that we have within us this, this capacity to accommodate to absorb, to metabolize that experience, to to feel it and have it turn into wisdom and compassion. Because we don't know this, we often instead just reactively go out in search, try to go somewhere else for relief. And so from beginningless time, people have distracted themselves and they have sought relief in, in pleasures that that leave in their wake more dissatisfaction, in avoidance, which creates a lot of tension, and in the flights of imagination, which lead to living in a kind of virtual version of ourselves and missing life. So this is the habit. And, you know, since the beginning of, of you know, these teachings and wisdom teachings, there have been those that said, you know, you, it's beautiful that you love yourself, but you're looking for love in all the wrong places. You are not attending to, you're not using the tool that you have available to you. And I can't explain why so few people uh, have awakened to that, the capacity that we have, but it's just, that's just our conditioning. So I don't know if it answered your question, but it's, that's the best I can do right now. You had your hand up. If you if you can deputize me to stop you and not take it personally, oh, okay, great. Okay, um, all I know is about Western culture and what I've been through. But when we grow up, I have uh, I was given a basket of things, and it started with my name, and then it started with my toys, and then it started where I lived, and then it started with the schools I've grown up with and the people I've known, and. As I grew up, I had more and more pleasurable experiences and more and more things I've been able to put into this basket. So when I interact, when I grew up or I'm growing up and I'm meeting people, I'm presenting myself in this, in this ego state and I treat, or I, I don't mean to, but I treat the, the people I work with differently and I don't mean to that, say, the clerk in the store or this or that. And they, in turn, are treating me differently according to how I interact. So there's this false sense of self that interacts with other people that have this elevated... And it's all, there's so much phoniness in everywhere. <laughs> and we've been so conditioned to defense mechanisms. And when we get hurt, 
it seems like Western culture is fucking crazy. Well said. I think that's a good place to stop. Thank you. <laughs> that was gorgeous. Please, Barbara. Yeah. Oh yeah, I'm just talking about the things that we react to. That, yeah, there, there is, no, of course we, in fact, that's what we miss by reacting in the way that we do. But our reactions are innocent, and that's what I, that's really the inspiration for this day, is that when you see, I will describe as we go through the day what the, in the teachings is called paticca samapada, or the, the paticca samapada means the law of dependent origination. How, how simple sense experience, simple moment-to-moment experience, how our reactions to it causes a chain reaction of elaboration where we go from a simple reality of basically the only thing that ever happens in any moment are six things. Seeing, Hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, and the awareness of these things. But depending on how we react to those six sense experiences, our mind goes into a state of, of a chain reaction of entering into, into virtual reality, and we lose contact. And that happens every moment, really. And so we don't, um, we won't necessarily eradicate that process, but we can make a shift to noticing how it happens. And ideally, this shift becomes one of, of that causes you to feel merciful and compassion for how bound up you've become in a version of yourself that doesn't actually exist and how innocently you ended up there. So to judge ourselves for something that is so conditioned by circumstances, by habit, by culture, uh, is a, as one teacher put it, is a grievous error. As he says, this is a teacher named Nisargadat, your flight from pain and your search for pleasure is a sign of love you bear for yourself. All I plead with you of the, is this. Make love of yourself perfect, which means wake up out of these ideas. And, but meet whatever it is, lovingly. Please. Is the process for us to see who we really are? It's to experience who or what you really are, moment by moment. So not to think of, I'm going to see who I really am somewhere at the end of the rainbow. Because when you think I'm going to see who I really am somewhere at the end of the rainbow, then in, there's a little, right in that, there's a little construction project going on. I'm somebody who's going to find who I really am in the future. And then I'm busy wrapping, I'm st- building the house of self around that future when I finally realize the great me. Instead, realizing who I am, or experiencing who I am this moment. Real time. And if you can't find it now, you can't find it anywhere. So what are we in real time? When the Buddha was asked after his awakening, his, he kind of woke up to 
what and who he is. <laughs> he said, oh, well, are you a saint? Are you a god? Are you a, 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 a deity or something? And he kept going through a litany of questions and finally said, I'm awake. So no, no grand... Uh, no grand um, titles or degrees or independent of bank accounts and neighborhoods and toys. You know, I, I, I was, you know, I, I give the, I've been leading this group in the Mission District for, you know, all these 30 years and I sit as my ritual, I sit in my car. I arrive early enough to get a parking place. And so I often will have my dinner with me. And I sit in the car and I eat my dinner. And I noodle a little bit about what the evening talk might be for that night. Just think about the things that have been on my mind or people I've met with. And, and just want to share some Dharma. And just... A week ago, I was sitting in the car and I noticed a homeless fellow walking very meticulously along the side of the fence of the church where we meet and then up and down, up the street and then down the street on the side where I was parked, meticulously walking, looking for money, something, and his countenance was so peaceful and he was so intent there was a, almost like a an aura of peace around this this fellow clearly he wouldn't measure up in our cultural notions of what it means to be somebody but this was a person who was seemingly at peace and interestingly enough as he walked toward me my heart just kind of opened toward him and i felt this impulse to as, as happens when our heart is moved by someone, uh, I felt the impulse to, to offer him some money for a meal or whatever. And I put down my window and I asked him what, it, what he's looking for. He said, you know, money. And he says, you wouldn't, and he, his eyes are glowing. He says, you wouldn't believe what you find. And he showed me a jewel that he found and he found $6. And this person was beaming and so peaceful. Again, not what we would usually measure ourselves or others about having made it, but he was the highest person I met all day. And it's something about valuing ourselves for just that capacity to be present and awake. Um, Of course, I I could risk... romanticizing his, <laughs> him or his situation, but there was some, th- some transmission that I felt from his simple presence. And I had met a lot of wealthy people that day, a lot of accomplished people that were clearly no happier. So happiness is an inside job. Please, in the very back and... <coughs> you have a thought, did you say? Do we have somebody who could walk around a mic? Yep. Thank you. Fabulous.
I've never started a day with all talking, but this is fun. <laughs> I, I have I a thought okay that at least it. partially addresses um, her question maybe, and it's also a question for you. Um, it seems to me that in life there's a, there's a balance to be struck um, between being in the present and then being oriented toward the past and the future. Well, all of and that happens in the present. Everything happens in the present, period. But I, and, right. Yeah. But going toward, you know, how you're, you're going to the church and losing the religion of focusing on dwelling in the past and, and, and you know, just being totally thinking about the future. And, and I know in my case, um, I'm in a place in my life where I've gone way too far to the a past and future orientation. Yes, so most not, of us have. I'm not finding the present. However, it seems to me that it's not reasonable or practical to think that you could live your entire life focused on the present because there are basic needs to be met. And whether it's you know success from a societal standpoint or just making sure that you put food on the table for your family, mm. those types of things require thinking about you they, know, planning. They require thinking about things in the present moment. Right. And they require planning in the present moment. And they, plan, they require executing in the present moment. Everything happens in the present moment. The problem isn't that, that we plan or execute or get, we get lost in, our, in where we're going or where we've been and actually don't execute our planning and our actions as, as effortlessly and as joyfully as we can. Okay, I think that's where I'm not fully understanding because I, I picture truly living in the present, the ideal situation would be like a Tibetan monk who's, who's living in the present, but you know, there are people who are providing food and, and donating. Yes, we, we and, but they, would, they will place. still have to respond to, to the conditions that present themselves, and if they need to, you know, you, there may be a, a person or a few that may have someone respond to their every need, but most of us need to plan. <laughs> Most of us need to arrange things, but we, don't, we do not need to live in our plans or in our memories. So it's, it's just realizing that everything that we do, our entire life, unfolds in a, in a present moment. Okay. That, that's where it's... I'm so every, to so, understand. So when you see, when you experience in your life I have no money right now. I have to get a job. No one is going to feed me. I don't live in a cave where I have attendants providing for my every meal. That is a realization of the present moment. And I need to reflect on what it is that I need to do in order to, you know, where do I need to go? If I'm very much oriented to real time, Awareness has within it, if I'm really opening to accepting that fact, awareness has within it intelligence. One of my teachers said, the idea is to be simple, not a simpleton. <laughs> to be intelligent, I need to go seek a job. Okay, I'm going to seek a job. I'm going to pick up the phone book, I'm going to look through, all that happens in real time. I'm going to go to the place to have my interview for that job. The beginning of my path 
to that interview is in the present moment. The path itself is in the present moment. Every step, present, present, present. I arrive at the interview, present moment. I meet with the, inter- with, with the person who, everything happens here. So I don't need to leave here in order to, to fulfill every need that I have in my life. I can't. Or I could just be just lost in worry about how that interview goes. And my mind can be so fixated on that, on how things turn out, that I lose touch with my body. I leave my body in a state of suspended happiness, frozen, in a state of, of fear, because I don't know how things will turn out. Instead, oh, I'm afraid of how it will turn out. And even including that, letting that feeling of being worried be the cause of my reminder of my love of of taking care of that feeling right now. Oh, I'm worried. And then being able to soothe myself and not postpone being well until the end of the interview. We live in a chronic state of postponement. Why not be at peace and then go to the interview knowing that that doesn't have to provide me peace, it just has to provide me a job. that my happiness is unassailable, it's unconditioned. As long as I make my happiness dependent on those conditions, I'm in a state of insecurity. And that's what the identity view tends to, to do. That's what our, our ego tends to get bound up in. It gets Th- uh, Thank you for that answer. It's my pleasure. Yeah, in the very sure. back, and that's the last one, and then we're going to refresh our postures a little bit, and we're going to actually practice, which is the way that we can love the house that Ego built the best. Please. I just wanted to share an intermediate step that I've been finding. I seem to need to bring myself into that happy, free, natural state. Oftentimes, I've experienced that state. I know it's there. I know I could get there, but I can't get there in one leap. And I'm finding well, that if it's I... it's not a getting there. Good point. I find if I <laughs> notice the suffering, it's a being here, right? Yeah. But I notice that the one thing that if I can remember to do it is to notice that I'm suffering. If I can simply first notice that I'm suffering, well, that, then that's I have already, an opportunity to release. Th- wait, wait, wait. That's already there. We're not, the we're not talking about getting to our happy place. We're talking about the happiness of being conscious. And if it's conscious of, being, of suffering, that you've already arised, arrived at the superior place. There's no place better than that. That's the mind that says, I'll be hap- I'm better if I start being happy. So that's not, that's not what we're up to. That's the happiness that depends on conditions. The Buddha described that as the happiness of bondage. Oh. So... <laughs> So the 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 happiness. I'm happy a lot. <laughs> the the happiness the only happiness worth that name is the happiness of being. Just to just to clarify a little bit in the Buddha's teachings, the highest happiness is peace. It's not a good mood. It's the it's the it's the capacity to be at peace even when you're suffering. It meet that with a peaceful presence. To be able to, to know, okay, this is a moment of suffering, exactly what you've done, and not look for anything but that. That is the, that is when the, that's when the strain stops, when you open to what's true. Remember, what do you need? Buddha, 
awake, dharma, what's happening right now? And then the third thing is the sangha, which is peop- other people in your life who remind you <laughs> who, that, that whatever you're experiencing is both the beginning of your path, it's the path itself, and it is the end of the path. It's just what you're experiencing. And of course, if you feel that sense of suffering, whatever, you're, whatever that flavor is, and you truly open to it, you recognize it, you accept it, and you investigate its feeling, and you just experience what that is, and you're able to do that, you'll recognize that whatever that state of mind that you're experiencing is like weather. It's a changing condition. And you will see that even if it doesn't go away, your capacity to experience it uh, increases. And then you you don't have to be in a state of, I need to get over this, or I need to get to my happy place to be happy. You don't. Just need to feel what you're feeling. Everything changes anyway. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Okay, I think that's a lot of words this morning. I, how are we doing? In t- could how are you? Are you understanding? Okay. Okay. So I'd like to thank you. Anyway, I'd like to invite you now to to maybe um, either change your posture or stand up. Just whatever would help aerate your being a little bit. So appreciate your engaging so far. So while you are getting refreshed, I thought that I would read a beautiful example of self of loving the house that ego built, a beautiful example of self-compassion and self-care. This passage is entitled, Two More Isles. Everybody here? Yeah. So please listen. A man observed a woman in the grocery store with a three-year-old girl in her basket. As they passed the cookie section, the little girl asked for cookies and her mother told her no. The little girl immediately began to whine and fuss. And the mother said quietly, Now, Monica, we are just half of the aisles left to go left to go through, don't be upset, it won't be long. Soon they came to the candy aisle and the little girl began to shout for candy and when told she couldn't have any, began to cry. The mother said, there, there, Monica, don't cry. Only two more aisles to go and then we'll be checking out. When they got to the checkout stand, the little girls immediately began to clamor for gum and burst into a terrible tantrum upon discovering there'd be no gum purchased. The mother patiently said, Monica will be through the checkout stand in five minutes and then you can go home and have a nice nap. The man followed them to the parking lot and stopped the woman to compliment her. I couldn't help noticing how patiently, 
how patient you were with little Monica, he began, whereupon the mother said, I'm Monica. My little girl's name is Tammy. (laughs) So I'd like you to employ your own version of Monica will be through the checkout stand in five minutes and then you can go home and have a nice nap. (laughs) So I read this now because the you may have notions about mindfulness, meditation. Mindfulness is the rage right now in the world. But its mindfulness has emerged out of out of a comprehensive liberation teaching. And its mindfulness is much more nuanced than just the teasing out of the, the, or the translation of the word sati, which is that, that lucid awareness. It's much more nuanced in that it is imbued, ideally, with kindness. Some have called it kindfulness. So one of the ways that we can love this house that ego built, this sense of being a person, both the ideas of being a person, the felt experience of being a person, is to meet our experience moment to moment with kind attention, with kindfulness. So one of the kind acts that we can engage in is finding a posture that is upright, yet relaxed. And you may also want to shift from side to side or front to back until you find a center point where it is most effortless to sit. And then allow your body to come to a gentle stillness. And let your eyes close softly. Unless if, but if you'd like to practice with your eyes partially open, that's also acceptable. But we can begin to let our mind, our attention, settle into our body by bringing gentle attention to the contact point where our rear touches the cushion or the chair. Feeling the support of the earth. And just hovering in that area around our rear end and the cushion or chair until those concepts of rear end and chair melt away and there's just sensation. And then we move on very gently to the touch of our hands 
until even the idea of hands fades away and there's just sensation. Same with our lips. Until there's just that contact, that felt sense. And if the eyes are closed, feeling the touch of the eyelids until there's, there are no eyelids, just sensation. And letting our awareness be filled with our whole body or our awareness fill our whole body. Feeling its points of sensation, its vibration, its aliveness until there's, we let the concept of body fade away and there's just that living experience sensations, stillness. And as we feel the gentle stillness of our body, letting it melt into the openness of our meditation, like a block of ice that's been left out in the sun, letting our body go, letting it be. As our body settles, we're naturally drawn to the gentle movements of the breath in our body. We feel our chest or our belly rise and fall, air brush past our nostrils or upper lip, or we feel a gentle expansion and contraction of the whole body. We don't need to make any of that happen. We just let our body breathe as it does most of the time, even when we're not paying attention to it. We simply accompany the body's breath with our kind attention. Connecting with the beginning through the duration of the body breathing in. Connecting and sustaining our awareness through the experience of the body breathing out. Breath by breath. This is our initial tool to help develop a harmony of mind and body, to develop focus, to create the conditions for a calm abiding. This is fulfilled by releasing strain or tension, just letting ourselves be. Letting our awareness be open and receptive, but our attention alert and precise. 
just intimately feeling this one half breath. Make no effort to direct or control the breath. Just let the body breathe and just notice that experience. It may alter a little bit just because of your attention, but as much as possible, let the breath breathe itself. Aware of breathing. Just this breath, just this moment.
it's quite natural that after just a few breaths, your thoughts will arise and they connect and there may not be mindful attention to meet those thoughts. And so you might find yourself or will likely find yourself having been lost in thought. But once you wake up to that fact, that's a moment of re-arising awareness, of mindfulness, of the potential for kindfulness to just a kind attention to the fact that you, you've been dreaming, daydreaming, and now you're awake. And so relax, and in behalf of staying anchored to this unfolding present, we connect again with our body and breath. We do so gently, just as we would if we were putting a puppy back on paper when we're trying to train it. Just this moment, just this breath. No judgment about the wandering mind.
sinking into the breath, sticking to it, spreading out all around it, not missing any part of this intimate experience of breathing in and breathing out, breath by breath. Just this breath, just this moment.
let go of any idea of what a breath should be. This is not a breathing exercise. We're simply noticing our body breathing and some we will notice that some are short and some are long, some rough, some smooth, some deep, some shallow. We don't try to manipulate it in any way. We simply connect with that felt sense of however it is, and this helps bring our mind and body together in harmony, help focus and calm, so that we can accommodate our experience with more stability, more balance, more calm. This is simply our initial anchor for our attention in real time, present moment.
our views about ourselves are often, as we spoke of earlier, often bound up in time, in views of time. So a lot of the identity thought of ourselves as and when we when we just connect with the simple experience of our of our body's breathing as our initial tool it is a way of of allowing us to experience uh, ourselves you could say outside of time outside of that concept of time to experience ourselves directly and simply uh, and Part of why part of why there is a a calming effect is that we've we're stepping out of that that story of ourselves as going somewhere or having been somewhere. We're just letting ourselves be connected to nature in its unfolding. And kind of nature moves medium or slow. It just unfolds. And that's our immediate experience, but our mind is often going very quickly into the, into the imagined past and future. So for those of you who have a little sense of humor, someone sent to me on the internet, um, from the internet, these, this passage, the past, the present, and the future walked into a bar. <laughs> it was tense. <laughs> a lot of our tension comes from from that fixation on on ourselves in time thoughts of ourselves in time and there's another teaching from a mahayana school that says having no view of self one is always peaceful. So if we don't have a view of time, we just let ourselves be. We start to connect with and awaken to that natural great peace. As one teacher named Sogyal Rinpoche put it, Oh, actually, it's Noshul Ken Rinpoche. He says, rest in natural great peace. This exhausted mind, beaten helpless by karma and neurotic thought, like the relentless fury of the pounding waves in the infinite ocean of samsara. Now, samsara is the, is the Sanskrit Pali word for for cycle, the endless wandering, its translation is endless wandering, endlessly searching for a future that never arrives. And that we can attribute a lot of our tension to this um, neurotic thought about time. So you may think when you're just putting your attention gently in your body, feeling your breath, that not much is going on, but literally you are stepping out of that trance of time and opening yourself to that natural great peace. But this is just the initial tool that we use. Ultimately, we use anything that we can recognize in real time. We use it as our anchor. But first, we have to develop enough 
harmony of mind and body, enough steadiness, um, enough continuity of noticing. And we give ourselves a simple anchor to start with. And that's why we use the breath. But this makes it possible then when other sensations become stronger than the breath to be able to notice those. And they also become the cause of our, our new love of being present. And then we feel moods and emotions. They also become included in our experience of the living present, so different from past and future, which are mental. And then even our thoughts and images become something that we notice and remind us that we're here. So at first, though, we give selective attention to our body and breath to develop that kind of harmony, to develop some focus and calm. And slowly as we go through the day, we keep expanding to include everything equally. I call it equal opportunity, mindful or kindful attention. Everything that you can notice will help you step out of time, will help you to see and partly see and see and feel what it's like. So you could be sitting here and all of a sudden there's a thought in your mind. I'm not getting this. This is what we call doubt. And that doubt will, will arise with a, often there will be a physical corollary, a physical feeling that goes with it of, of kind of a little crash, a little depressed feeling, a little dissipation of our energy. We just call that doubt. We notice the thought, but we expand beyond the, dot, the, expand beyond the thought to notice how that feels when there's doubt in our mind, and how that manifests. And so even that experience of something that can be, if, we, if it goes unnoticed, can lead to a chain of, of, of dissatisfaction and then it can lead to a feeling that I can't do this and then we start planning our escape. Any of you already? Instead, it just becomes doubt, the experience of doubt. It arouses interest, curiosity. We actually can experience that doubt is just, it's not personal, it's not me. It's a changing state of mind that seemed to emerge by itself and then it faded away when I noticed it. But if, I, if it goes unnoticed, that simple thought starts connecting with other thoughts. And then it spreads out into what the, what's called in the teachings called uh, ordinary thinking, which is also known as the chain of delusion. When we get lost in the thoughts about things, and lose contact with reality. But that's basically what we've been practicing our whole life, is the chain of delusion. <laughs> so here, we want to, one, prevent us from spinning out too far, but even when we do, to, to be able to notice all of it. Wow, I've just gone from a simple sense experience to feeling like I'm the worst meditator in the world, or making a whole story about Spirit Rock, and this teacher, or this, and I'm planning my escape, and, I, and I'll, I'll say, what happened? Really, nothing happened, but our mind went 
off. So we're trying to both be simple, but also notice the way that we proliferate. Does this make sense, what I'm saying? But in order for us to be able to notice that house of ego being made moment to moment, how we build an identity of somebody that's either getting it or not getting it or needs to go or needs to stay, whatever that, uh, that story is, in order to notice that, we have to have a little steadiness. We have to have some continuity of present awareness to be able to catch that. Otherwise, we're simply carried along by the stream of our habit. So it's a slow process of, of having that, developing that continuity of awareness. And we started with our breath. And in order f- for us to be able to sustain that, we need, in addition to, to having that sense of present awareness, in addition to sitting, we also balance that with walking meditation. Something that both builds energy, helps arouse our vital energy, gets our circulation going, as well maintains the continuity of attention. So right now, we will take, I will show you what will, hopefully this thing, oh, that's not so good. We have a little short in the wiring, Mark. (laughs) Okay. I, I don't, I'm not sure if there's anything you can do right now. <laughs> Some might. The switch, you might have to switch the switch. That's okay. We can take care of it. Thanks for coming in. That was very. So even though I was very unmindful when I did it, the process of moving from the sitting posture to the standing posture still re- still it's possible to maintain that sense of aware presence. So before I was sitting on the cushion, as I like to think of it, the Buddha just being awake, noticing the Dharma, the truth of sitting, the experience of sitting and breathing, etc. And just because I've stood up doesn't mean that I, I still have the same quality of aware presence. Now I'm aware of the standing posture. So nothing has changed in terms of, a, of the potential for continuity of awareness. I'm just in a different posture now. Buddha recommended that we keep that continuity of awareness in four postures, sitting, standing, lying down, and moving to and fro, back and forth. So in this case, though, in the form, our two formal practices during the day are sitting and walking. So now that I'm at my walking spot, same aware presence, but instead of attending as my initial anchor to the, to the breathing, to the feeling of the breath in my body, instead I'm going to draw my attention as a way of gathering and sustaining. We're, we're training our attention to, to be gathered here in our body in real time and then try to sustain that. So my, my point of gathering will be the movement of my legs and the contact of my feet. And in the formal walking practice, I would walk about the length of this carpeted area here. And instead of just taking a walk, I walk to and fro. And one of the things that you'll realize that I realize when I'm walking to and and fro is I'm not going anywhere. 
that the whole point is to arrive in the step I'm taking. So it's not to reach a destination, such as the end of the... As Alan Watts says, the point of music isn't to reach the end of the composition. Otherwise, the fastest players would be the best. (laughs) And the point of dancing isn't to arrive at a particular place on the floor, as in taking a journey. The journey itself is the point. And the same is true in meditation. The point is always arrived at in the moment we're in. Our mind is so trained to seek a destination, though, somewhere other than here. So we notice that. But each time we notice our mind try to lean forward or lean back, we just reconnect again with the ever-present. One of the beautiful things about using our body in practice, it's always here, at least as long as we're alive. And so in, in the walking, we connect with our steps. We we harmonize our mind and body, have our attention in the exact same moment at the exact same time as the step that's being taken so that we actually feel it. And to walk a little slower than usual just so that you can feel the step. And if you walk too slow, you might tense up. If you walk too quickly, you might not notice much. So finding your sweet spot, and that may change. So I like to say walk at a pace that you can stay attentive, relaxed, in balance. Too slow, you may lose your balance as well. So you want to walk at a pace where your mind is in sync with your body, attentive, balanced, relaxed, and interested. You know, interest and attention are very, are very much inclined. So if you move too fast, you may not notice much. And if you don't notice much, you won't have much interest. If you notice more, you'll have more interest. So it just builds that way. So when I hit the end of my pathway, I want to thank you. I want to be equally aware of the experience of turning around. Thank you. Turning around and then again. Could be the whole time depending on your mental state, your temperament, you may want to walk at just slightly slower than a natural pace. So don't turn slow into a religion. Because if you do, you'll probably, your mind probably isn't settled enough to move too slowly and you'll start to tense up. So walk, let your, let the slowness come organically as you settle into the practice. So walking back and forth and there's beautiful grounds here. In about 20 minutes, we'll have a 20-minute walking period. After the 20-minute mark, there will be a gong to bring you back to sit, and we'll sit again. And it's ideal if you think in terms of that continuity of attention being seamless through the day. So you have the formal periods of sitting and walking, but you also have the in-between periods. And when you're in transition coming back to the hall, be mindful. Feel your body. And just get used to the fact that your life is an unfolding present moment. It's just... It's always right where you are. You've heard the expression, wherever you go, there you are. And it's, it's true. So don't miss it. So a walking period, and also I will be sitting here for anybody that wants to check in one-on-one, just um, who feels, want to check in about your practice right now. But just your steps. You can even accompany your steps with a little with a little mental label of stepping, stepping, or left, right, or lifting, placing, 
just to keep, give your conceptual mind something to do, but most important is to feel the steps and stay with them. Okay, thank you. Nice to have you here. Please do the practice. Seeing through the self-illusion or our self-ideas does not imply that you vanish into thin air. (laughs) But it allows you to see that you will function when you are not when you are not bound up in your identity view and your personality view, when you're experiencing life in its simplicity, just being yourself, that unique expression of life, that when you are meeting life in that simplicity, you function 200% better than when you are uh, seeing through the lens of your identity view. Your, your ego. So this is seeing through an illusion, seeing the imagined version of yourself, even though it is part of our psychological structure, it does not have any ultimate reality. It's a very useful device, but it obscures sometimes that immediate sense of ourselves prior to our thoughts, as we talked about earlier. So in the process of meeting ourselves directly, simply, we must open to a whole range of experiences that we are often reactive to. And when we are reactive to our experience, one of the ways that we deal with it is that we become um, absorbed in, used as our reference point, our thinking mind. We get lost in thought. We take the version of ourselves that plays in our mind to be more real than the immediate experience of ourselves sitting in this room. As James J. Audubon put it, if there's a difference between the bird and what the field guide book says, believe the bird. (laughs) We are often consulting the field guide book to define ourselves. And we do that innocently because partly because we tend to react to our experience. If our experience is pleasant, we react with liking. When pleasant experience is reacted to with liking, there's a little tension that builds whenever our mind is in a state of liking. And if that liking is noticed, if liking is recognized, then it's just liking. But if liking is not recognized, it is very quickly followed with wanting. Wanting to retain what we're experiencing that is pleasant and then, or seeking out some way of replicating or continuing to have a similar kind of experience. 
So it starts with a little reaction to pleasant, but our mind then moves into a state of, of wanting something else, wanting to continue. And part of that process of trying to retain pleasant experience is we, the pressure of that, the tension of that liking and wanting tends to create um, that internal world of, of me who has to move from where I've just been through what I'm dealing with now in order to reach that future con- continuation of pleasant experience. So that makes it, the more I do that unconsciously, the less I can actually accommodate pleasant experience and feel the full, the full beauty of, of light entering my, of sight entering my eye door, sound entering our ears, smell to the nose, taste to the tongue, sensations in the body, even thoughts have a valence of pleasantness from time to time, and even to be able to feel the pleasantness of that. We're so quickly on to what the Buddha called the state of becoming. So, you've heard this poem before maybe, everybody wants to be somebody. Nobody wants to be nobody, which just means to be simple. But if that somebody could just be nobody, that nobody would really be somebody. <laughs> so more, m- much more relevant to our experience, much more relevant to what we're dealing with, or equally as relevant, is our reaction to unpleasant. Because so much of our culture associates happiness with the maintenance of pleasant and the avoidance of the unpleasant. And both of those reactions tend to keep us on that gerbil wheel of endless searching. So a lot of our practice, especially when we're settling into a practice period, developing a practice, is maybe for the first time in our life learning to give value to embracing, including in our awareness, the ability to accommodate and metabolize unpleasant experience because it's an inevitable part of our life. When we're unable to accommodate the unpleasant experience, our mind quickly reacts in dislike and then aversion and then the pressure of aversion and dislike tends to generate a big story of how I'm got, how Spirit Rock needs to be arranged differently otherwise I can't be happy or, or my, my knee pain has to go away in order to be happy. Or everybody has to stop making noise around me. So pretty soon, there, our well-being is, because of our reaction to unpleasant, our well-being is dependent on conditions or circumstances. And that kind of well-being that depends on circumstances is um, very vulnerable, very fragile, and impossible, essentially. Because conditions are always changing. So as we open right now, we'll sit right now again for the next 15 or 20 minutes. Please put down your drinks. We will expand the meditation to include not just the experience of breathing, 
but to be welcoming and gracious when sounds become stronger than the breath and when other sensations, other than the sensations of breathing, become stronger than the breath. And at that time that a sensation becomes stronger than the breath, we let the breath recede to the background and we let our attention rest in the foreground of whatever that predominant experience is. And if it's pleasant, we feel it. We feel the quality of that sensation. We feel its pleasantness. When it's unpleasant, we notice its quality. It could be aching or burning or stabbing or itching or tingling or squeezing or cool, warm, hot, vibrating, pulsing. We feel its quality. It's truth. That's nature expressing itself in that moment. We feel its quality, but we also feel that valence. Is it unpleasant? And we, we accommodate that unpleasantness and see if it's possible. Is it possible to experience unpleasantness and have our mind be balanced and non-reactive, to have our attention be well, to be happy? Not necessarily in a good mood, but just non-reactive. The happiness of peace. These two are often very closely fused together. If it's unpleasant, I'm suffering. But in fact, the teachings remind us that the uncomfortableness or unpleasant is inevitable. The suffering about that is optional. It has everything to do with how it is that we relate to that experience that's presenting itself. Mindfulness creates the conditions to be able to meet pleasant and unpleasant without suffering without reaction, without getting lost in our reaction. But we will have reactions, but we try to notice those as well. So recognize that your whole life has coalesced into this moment. This, is, this moment is the fruit of everything that has ever happened to you. All the circumstances of your existence from beginningless time had to come together in order for you to have the experience you're having right now. This is the culmination or the part of the flow of life manifesting. So whatever you're experiencing right now is not a mistake. It's just the fruits of causes and conditions most of which are non-personal. So let yourself feel the way life has converged right here. Not the idea of it, but the direct experience of your body sitting still at the single point that connects you with all of life. It depends on this breathing body, breathing, So we can continue to use the breath as our primary anchor way of harmonizing our mind and body, of focusing, of calming. And simply attending to feeling intimately just this one half breath 
with soft attention, yet alert, gentle, yet precise. Sticking to that experience of the breath as it presents itself and spreading out all around it. Not missing any part of this one amazing life breath. Unexplainable. And settle back into the moment. And if a sound becomes stronger than the breath, just be aware of hearing. Let the sounds appear and disappear. Everything is changing. And if sensations become stronger than the breath, we recognize them. We accept them. And we investigate their nature, what happens to them, their quality, their valence. And when they're no longer predominant or compelling or have faded away, we gently connect again in behalf of staying present. We connect again with our body breath. Just this moment, just this breath or whatever is predominant.
no matter how many times you realize you've been lost in thought, each moment that you recognize that is a moment of awareness shining through, wakefulness. So appreciate that reawakening, relax, and in behalf of staying anchored to this unfolding present, we connect again with our body and our breath or sounds, whichever is predominant. For with our primary anchor, connecting with it and sustaining through the duration of each in-breath and out-breath, however it's felt, breath by breath.
Is your present experience pleasant? Is it unpleasant or is it neither pleasant or unpleasant? Just notice that quality of feeling or valence. Let it be, as is. just this moment.
I don't know about your experience, but um, it's very nice for me to be sitting with all of you. I appreciate you staying with the practice this morning. And I'm reminded that this path that um, perhaps you're just newly discovering, it's sometimes described as against the stream. And there's a lot of, there are a lot of metaphors used in the teachings of the Buddha and uh, Probably one of the most common is uh, common metaphors are those related to the confluence of tributaries and rivers and streams and and this one expression against the stream reminds us that the that most of the currents of our life that we the river that we tend to jump in is the one that that is all about the obsession with what's next and the escape from pain and the grasping at pleasure and the assumption that you're the best is yet to come and the assumption that uh, something, some place, some person, some purchase, something will make you happier than you are. And the, of course, our whole consumer machine is all designed to keep you in that state of seeking that needs, says one teacher put it, to keep you greedy to keep going. And it's very uh, sophisticated and versatile in its methods of enticing you into running from silence. So we're going against the stream of that, stopping, actually saying the way out of your, of your distress and dissatisfaction is to feel it. And the way out of, of stress in general is to come home to the life of the present moment. That's against the stream of what we're trained. So at first, because we are all conditioned uh, in the same culture, and maybe the whole world is like that in general, we're conditioned to, to distract ourselves. And so it's a, it's a big thing. It's a courageous thing to stop and to keep quiet and open to the, not only just the simple reality of the present moment, but the, to the effect of having run from silence for so long, run from yourself for so long. Our bodies are often frozen, tense, exhausted, our vital energy diminished, and our mind, as a result of being so disembodied for much of the time, is just often in a, we're like thinking machines, it's just, we're just buzzing. And you'll notice that the more your mind is able to sink into your body, and your body to fill your mind, you'll notice that the byproduct of being embodied is that it renders the thinking mind a little bit quieter. Of course, we're not attempting to quiet our mind. If you attempt to quiet your mind, it usually means you're bothered by it. And if you're bothered by it, it will keep tormenting you. If, on the other hand, you're, you notice your mind and you're not bothered by it, it will quiet by itself as your mind settles more into your body. So don't try to stop your... Don't try to quiet your mind. That's just greed in the mind or aversion in the mind operating surreptitiously. You know, kind of, uh, I'll pay attention to you if you get quiet. 
it knows. So having said all that, part of what we open to is the effect of our life on our bodies. And so there are, there are uh, some pleasant experiences that we have been unaware of, but there are a lot, a lot of unpleasant ones. So sometimes as we open to unpleasant, we'll notice that our habitual way of dealing with it is to be reactive and fearful of it. We're fearful of something that's so close because we don't know how to work with it. And so if you find that that conditioned reaction is very strong and you're just getting very reactive about some unpleasant experience you're having in your body, you can work for a while at softening your attention, continuing in that direction of accommodating what's there. But at some point, if you find that you've gotten so reactive, so resistant, then it's actually better at that moment to move your attention to some place in your body that is either neutral or even slightly pleasant. Even though the predominant experience is something unpleasant, in order to regain your composure, your balance, your capacity to notice, you may need to shift your attention. Uh, so it's not cheating. <laughs> the tendency is, is to just distract. This way we're staying conscious, but we're moving our attention away. Let's see if there was any more about... Well, that's enough. I'm open now for the next few minutes before we have lunch to uh, hear about what you're noticing so far. In the, we've had a couple sittings, a walking, and anything about the instructions or anything that's been set up to this point. This is a time I can be most useful. You had your hand up first. I'll bring you the mic. Who had their hand up? This nice lady over here. Two mics. Scary. Uh, oh gosh. Okay. Thank you. Um, Thank you. I I keep noticing that um, I'll find a place where as soon as I get quiet, there's this sort of real, just real joy and happiness, which I'm sure is a wonderful thing, being joy and happiness. But no. It, it also. <laughs> but it also feels like. It feels like I'm, I've just escaped something. And then it's like, oh, gosh, I'm, am, I, am I, I'm like, obviously I'm running away from it. And so I feel really guilty about running away from this thing that I've just escaped. And, um, and I've, I've heard people say that um, meditation can be an escape, that people use it as, um, I don't, maybe I, don't, I can't find the right word. As a bypass or as a... Thank you. So can you speak uh, maybe a little bit yes. to that? First of all, that whole sequence of what you went through, is we, there's a name for that. It's called papancha, which means proliferation, the effusion of thought that, that obscures the bare simplicity of what's hap- actually happening. It, the, um, so this is what our minds do. They start spinning out in reactions to what we're experiencing. In this case, it was into something very pleasant. When the reality of your experience is there's some joy or there's something very pleasant, a pleasant feeling, a pleasant abiding. So ne- you never, ever have to question that. The fact that... But what you may want to question over time is your motivation for practice. If your motivation is just to get to that place again... That's called the corruptions of insight. 
But if you're, if as a byproduct of just being available to what's there, you experience that state of joy and ease, the Buddha also described that as the springboard to nirvana because it gladdens the heart, makes you want to keep practicing. But if your motivation is to then replicate that experience, that's greed in the mind, and that'll make you tired and reactive. Uh, if, on the other hand, it shows up, great, enjoy it. So you never... So the only way that you'll find that you're bypassing is if you start seeing that your motivation is to get away from things. So you always want to, in your practice, look at your motivation. Is it to open to life? Is it to be free with all situations? Or is it to, to hang out in a compartment of non, of, uh, you know, where, I'm, where I don't have to deal with things? I actually think it's okay, periodically, there, that it is a wholesome intention if you've been inundated with stress and struggle and your mind has been just all over the place and you've just been in so many sensory experiences have been impinging on your consciousness, your nervous system is, is wired, etc. I think it's actually a wholesome motivation to, uh, to want to experience some seclusion. And in a sense, when we gather our mind and body together, there is a feeling of seclusion. And that's wholesome. It's okay, but if th- that became your, if that became the whole purpose of your life, then it becomes delusion. So, I don't know if that answered the question, but I appreciated the question a lot. Please. Yes, thank you. Um, all this stuff. Uh, all this stuff. Ma- all this stuff <laughs> makes me very excited and very happy because you know it. It works. Makes I, you excited and happy. Yes, thank you. I love it. My question is. Does awareness move? You've talked about it as if awareness moves through time or moves to ideas and moves to thoughts. What, what so tell me where the question is coming from so that I don't get too theoretical. Okay. Um, I've What's happening in your experience that, that's leading to this question, just so I have a clearer sense? In, in the Buddha state, that... That's, state of awareness, uh, it's moved me to insights that have been very, very helpful to me. So out of, out, of that cl- out of that clear perception has come epiphanies, understanding, yes. and some, yeah. Um, I've also experienced uh, shamanic uh, j- journeying, journeying. Mm-hmm. and um, the repetitive sound that allows that to happen yes. takes my awareness someplace else. Right. Uh, Deepak Chopra is trying to explain with quantum physics that there's a whole lot of stuff going on that we have access to, but it's very hard to understand it. Does shamanic journeying fit with the awareness having the freedom to go wherever? Since I haven't done shamanic journeying, okay. I can't speak with any authority. Um, however, just like the previous question, yeah. everything, as one, as the teacher Padma Sambhav put it, everything hangs on the tip of motivation and intention. What is the aim of this journeying and this moving the attention? Okay. Is it, if the aim is for understanding, if the aim is to is to, uh, to see clearly the nature of reality, then anything that you do, in a way, 
that doesn't have that's that's um, that's healthy, mm-hmm. you know, that that doesn't have side effects of causing you more harm. Right. You're you know you're free to explore. So it's really all about motivation. But if you're, let's say you're doing journeying, taking the, the medicine, whatever it is, no, no, and no, oh, no medicine. No, it's okay. no medicine. It's no just medicine. Sound. Okay. No. <laughs> just sounds. Okay. It, no. In general, in general, in the, the Buddha was not interested in metaphysics. He was interested in just the simple reality that we, that we if we're born, lead, being born is the leading cause of all kinds of stress. That's what he was interested in. And, that, and what it is that about that stress that gets exacerbated by the way we are with it and what can actually free us from those, the reactions. He was interested in one thing only, dukkha, which is the unsatisfactoriness, the unreliability, the stress, what causes it, and how we can remove the cause so that we can live freely. Okay. So right. that's really the bottom line. Okay. So that so it's not really uh, about reaching any states. Okay. It is really about seeing the commonality of all the states that we go through, and understanding that everything is changing. And if you cling to things that are changing, you'll get rope burn. That's right. And if you let go of the tight fist of grasping in your life a little bit, you'll have a little peace. And if you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of peace. And if you let go completely into the f- stream of life, into the flow of life, into the unfolding, and make peace with it as it is, then you'll not only be able to feel free, but you'll also be free to act and care and, and um, appreciate yourself in a fellowship of other people who are trying to do the same thing. And then that's, you'll, you'll become more useful. <laughs> okay, thank you. I don't know if that answers your question, well, but I appreciate it, it. Yes, it does. In a way, I, I'm not talking about LSD or anything. No, 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 I hear you. Drugs or anything else. I'm talking about... No, but, but really shift. it's about what's the, it's a, the intention and yeah, not to get, not to get caught up in any state. Yeah. But if, you, if that intention is to understand, we, part of the way that we express love in our life is the love of understanding. Not just romantic or, or music or something. it's it's understanding that gives that's a big turn on. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you. Please. Hi. Oh, Hi. thank you. Can we talk a little bit about unmet needs? Yeah, and bright light. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> the unmet needs. Yeah, and oh, how. Yeah. <sighs> I'll just I'll just get real and just talk about myself. <laughs> Thank you. Thank <laughs> I could I could go all theoretical. I'll just say my unmet need. Um, I have a romance addiction, um, and that's this craving that once I find this magical romantic partner, yes, suddenly everything is going to be yeah. wonderful. <laughs> we all, just so you know, we all have our version of addiction. Exactly. Whatever we think is the end of the rainbow is our addiction, exactly. and it's the and whatever the object is, they're endless. The, what it does obscure is the, it, it, it deprives us of the, the natural happiness of conscious being, of being awake and conscious. Yes, so I, I understand that. So I, I also want to respect, though, that there is a validity of having this desire for... Romance. You're human, you have them. Exactly. So how do I live with that human desire and not have to scratch it and like fulfill it? Okay, what, what we, that's such a great question. How do I live with that human desire? 
the issue with our human desire is that we are, like you just said, we are always scratching it and it just makes us, it makes us itch more. And so what we do meditatively is we, we normalize it. This is, this is what human beings do. This is in some way, and this is not in any way evaluating what you're saying, but this is Dharma 101. This is in the heart of the teaching. There is the stress of not all those different kinds of stresses. And in the one you're talking about, it's the stress of wanting what I don't have or the stress of not wanting what I do have, which is maybe aloneness or whatever it might be. So this is a common experience, human. It's so, every one of us has to deal with this. And the way that we, that our culture tells us is to scratch the itch and to, to, keep, sh- to keep shopping or, you know, this, I've got a, I have to read this to you since this may make our lunch a little late, but I think you'll just love this if I can find it. It's worth it. See, this is desire too. This is a wholesome desire. Okay, I thought I had it and I guess I don't. Oh, here it is. I found it. Yay! So just to normalize this uh, and hopefully in the, somewhere in the span of, your, of our life to have a sense of humor about it, which I think this poem does. This is from a poem from a, te- from a poet named Georges uh, Bilger and it's entitled Unwise Purchases. And this is a lot of how our identity is formed around our desires and these deep longings. They sit around the house, not doing much of anything. The boxed set of the complete works of Verdi, unopened. The complete Proust, unread. The French cut silk shirts, which hang like expensive ghosts in the closet and make me look exactly like the kind of middle-aged man who would wear a French-cut silk shirt. (laughs) The reflector telescope I bought, I thought would unlock the mystery of the heavens, but which I only use once or twice to try to find something heavenly in the windows of the high-rise down the road. and which now stares disconsolately at the ceiling when it could be examining Crab Nebula. The 30-day course in Spanish, whose text I never opened, whose dozen cassette tapes remain unplayed, save for tape one, where I never learned whether the suave American conversing with a sultry-sounding desk clerk at a Madrid hotel about the possibility of obtaining a room actually managed to check in. I like to think that one thing led to another between them and that by tape six or so, they're happily married and raising a bilingual child in Seville, Seville or Terre Haute, but I'll never know. Suddenly I realize I've constructed the perfect home for a sexy Spanish-speaking astronomer who reads Proust while listening to Italian arias. And I wonder 
If somewhere in this teeming city there lives a woman with, say, a fencing foil gathering dust in the corner near her unused easel, a rainbow of oil paints drying in their tubes, on the table where the violin she bought on a whim lies entombed in the permanent darkness of its locked case next to the abandoned chess set, a woman who has always dreamed of becoming the kind of woman the man I've always dreamed of becoming has always dreamed of meeting. <laughs> and while the two of them discuss star clusters and Cezanne, while they fence delicately in Castilian Spanish to the strains of Rigoletto, she and I will stand in the steamy kitchen fixing up a little risotto, enjoying a modest cabernet while talking over a day so ordinary as to seem miraculous. So this is, this is another version of papancha, the effusion of our mind to, to other places and people that obscures the bare, as they say traditionally, obscures the bare data of cognition. So what we do is knowing that, that's, that we're all, we've all have our version of, of this poem, Unwise Purchases, is we, instead of focusing, this is first of all the part about the meditation, Instead of focusing on the object of our desire, we expand beyond the object that usually has that story or that proliferation. We expand beyond the object and we feel that longing, that desire. So that we're, the, the, the person, the picture, is the secondhand version of the engine, which is the longing or the desire. And truly what all of us is longing for is that sense of relief. And our culture will say, look at the desire, satisfy it, scratch the itch. Meditatively, we say, don't suppress that desire. Don't, don't be a good non-desiring person and then irritate everybody around you. <laughs> Instead, expand beyond the object Feel that sense of longing in your body. And notice what happens to that experience when you open to it. And then, if you, f- if you rest in some ways in the source of that desire, which is just, it's emerging out of your nature. The same desire that when you follow it leads to that endless wandering the same desire becomes the manure. It becomes the tenderizer of your heart. It becomes the cause of your awakening. So in one sense, when it goes unnoticed, it's a hindrance to freedom. When it's attended to lovingly, when you love that house that you build, that house of desire, when you love it, it will it'll break your heart. It will calm you. And it will actually return to you to that vital point, which is always arrived at in the here and now. So that's the easy way of talking about it. But another is to actually be able to do that. Because the, the, the trance, the cultural trance, is we're absolutely convinced that we have to have something to be happy. When in fact, it's the opposite that's true. The true happiness is in emptiness or openness. But 
we're human, so we that's that becomes as Trungpa Rinpoche, a Tibetan teacher, says that's our manure of bodhi. That that's what we use for our practice. So none of that should be seen as a problem, for in terms of meditative freedom, it's that's just our doorway. Yeah. Since I'm a chronic, uh, we have different character types based on the, what the Buddha described as the three poisons, greed, hatred, and ignorance, or delusion, we generally are dominated by, by one of those qualities. I'm much more what we would call a greed type. And the aversive types are the ones that see what's wrong with everything. The greed types always see what they want. And the deluded types just check out <laughs> or just get lost in the personality view. And so it's... Um, so to be able to, to just recognize it as desire, greed in the mind, and, and just learning how to work with that, and, and, know to, and then learning how little you actually need to be happy. Please. Um. <clears throat> We're going to take lunch and after one more question, be after you, but thank you. Thank you. So... Um I leave the present moment a lot because I'm I find that my thoughts even unpleasant ones are far more entertaining and I'm just bored in the present moment if I really just try to open to the experience like so you're bored I hear you yeah okay Yeah I mean I I hear the teaching about you know like be interested in the breath and <laughs> you know, just notice that sounds with boring curiosity. the way you say it. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, it, it feels kind of boring. And so then I, I, I find myself, it's like, yeah, I keep coming back and I, I find my anchors. Oh, uh, yeah, and, I think you need to focus on that attitude. <laughs> no, honestly, I don't mean you've got a bad attitude. I mean, just that that is really where the action is, is even the tone that you're using in regard to the, there's already a coloring of your awareness. And so that really the freed, the, the ground zero really is not what's happening. It's the attitude of mind through which you're seeing what's happening. So if there is an attitude of boredom or disinterest or aversion, that's, what ne- that's where the attention needs to go. Initially, though, we don't have the subtlety of awareness to notice very clearly our attitude. And so that's why we, we try to develop that continuity of, of awareness of our body, some steadiness, some brightness of mind, so that we can actually start picking up on that attitude. So uh, please continue your question. And I'll no, so that's good then, I guess, in the sense of, okay, if I'm experiencing aversion, is that what I'm hearing? So if I'm experiencing some aversion, how yeah, do that's I... The, that becomes the new center of your meditation. This, the so first instruction of the afternoon will be to work with the mental states. Okay. But um, when you say you'd rather be with thoughts, thoughts are very, thoughts have a valent, you know, they're pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, just like, just like the breath and sensation. And they are one of the sources of the greatest intoxication that we experience. Just as a sense experience, remember we have eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and the sixth door of perception is called mind, with thinking and feeling. And so it's, it's really a, sense, sense, a domain of sense experience. And we're addicted to one or the other. And that's probably the one that 
as, our, as a culture that's pretty much disembodied, we tend to live a lot in our thoughts, and so that's the area that we both have pleasure and pain. So that's not surprising that you might want to, that's where you might want to go when you're, when you're bored. Or when you're, but boredom, as Fritz Perl says, boredom comes from lack of attention. So ideally, when you're bored, the first thing to do is come closer to the experience that you're, to rub against the object, feel things, just come a little closer. Because that's where the interest grows from seeing more. On the other hand, you may do all that and you may still feel bored. At that point, boredom is one of the most, can be one of the most interesting mental states to pay attention to. Boredom we usually treat like the plague. It means I have to get out of here. I have something has to change. But then if you actually turn toward boredom, the state of boredom itself, you'll feel a kind of heaviness or you'll feel a combination. You'll, you'll be a kind of quality in your mind, a feeling in your body. And if you just turn the light on to that, you'll see that all that compulsive distractedness has come in reaction to a feeling that's not much. And once the light of attention meets that boredom, it doesn't last that long. So at the point where boredom is really strong, it doesn't, you don't have, it's not about getting to the breath or anything. That's the center. That is it. And in fact, boredom is the sign that your practice is deepening. Boredom is considered a high state because it means that your normal, their usual dependency on things being ex- excessively stimulating is in your face, it's coming to, and you, it's beginning to diminish. You're, you're no longer able to find the usual distractions. So it's actually a sign, a good place in practice to, to practice. So, oh, boredom. And be able to say inwardly, oh, boredom's like this. Have we ever studied boredom? Or have we mostly reacted to boredom? So this is the, it's an opportunity that may not sound so interesting to you now, but, but do it, and it'll save you so much restlessness and compulsion. So, thanks for the question. So we are, at that moment, about to take lunch. And a reminder that, that part of the, um, the foundation for foundation for being able to develop this practice that will allow us to develop some kindness and mercy toward ourselves, toward others, is to, is to establish in our lives the, the habit of non-harming, of, of what the Buddha described as purity of action. So I forgot to do this early in the day, but we, when we meet together like this, we agree to certain training guidelines, certain guidelines, agreements that we live together in harmony because this, this part of this process of opening is, is tender. And I love that you were able to just share your, your present state of mind, but it's tender and we want to be able to feel as much safety as possible. So we agree here to be respectful to each other and each other's life. We agree, and in general, the traditional one is not killing, but I don't think anybody's going to do any killing, but not killing insects either, but to a reverence for each life form that's here. Two, not to take what is not offered, to not to steal, but also to, to be, find some contentment with simplicity, you know, not to, just to take what's given here. 
but it, traditionally it's not stealing. Third, to uh, suspend our fixation on sex, which means to take all that energy and not move it toward flirting or seeking our, that, that partner, but at least for this time, <laughs> so not f- going off into George Bilger's fantasies, not acting it out and flirting, not, um, but just taking the attention that often gets preoccupied with that and just turning it into moment-to-moment attention and kindness. So not, and then in our daily life, it's not causing suffering with our sexuality, ourselves or anyone else. Fourth one, in the context of a retreat, we make the commitment to noble silence. In other words, we give each other the gift of solitude, which is very rare. And that may be challenging for people who came with someone who you're, and you're used to operating in a certain role with that person. But if you are willing to practice this noble silence, you give that person the gift of not having to engage with you as a partner, as a friend or anything, but just to be able to be simple, aware of the different doors of perception, the senses, and, and not have to be somebody. Now, if, you, if that's too much of a shock to your system and you want to speak to one another during the, the lunch period, try to do it in a place where you're not interrupting someone else's silence or really giving each other that gift. This is, a, this is a practice of generosity too, this practice of supporting others. But in general, the training guideline for speech is to be harmonious in speech, truthful, timely, for the benefit of whoever you are speaking to. But for this time pretty much to commit to silence, to give ourselves that very rare gift. One of the things that people most appreciate, even though it freaks us out to think about it before we start. So last but not least, we commit to not taking any intoxicants that cloud the mind or cause ourselves to be careless, heedless, cause you know other suffering. So we try not to do any drugs or alcohol. And I include consulting your smartphone as another intoxicant. I would renounce that for the day for the benefit of you and and all beings. (laughs) See if you can handle it. It's a heavy-duty addiction. We're in in a brave new world. I know that, you know, my own impulse, if I have that phone nearby, it's, you know, it's, it's, look, you know, the amazing thing is that I'm, I'm interested in looking even when I'm driving. And that's craziness. And I, I see the mental illness in that. But we're just learning how to deal with that. It is an intoxicant. And it changes our brain. And not always in good ways. So anyway, that's the general guidelines. Everybody agreed to live by these for, the, for each other's benefit, for our own benefit. Great. So thank you for that. Last but not least, and this is going to be an abbreviated version The way these teachings and practices have been offered now for the last uh, 2,600 years has been freely. The teachings have always been offered freely because they were considered priceless. You couldn't put a price on them. So they would be accessible to everyone regardless of your resources, your life condition. And uh, because the... Also because the... The Buddha, when he, especially in dealing with lay people, he saw that there was a tremendous benefit in developing 
a system of mutual generosity where the, those who offer teachings would, as their practice of generosity, offer freely. And the lay people, the lay community who used to support the nuns and the monks, as their practice of generosity, would, would provide for the requisites and the needs of the monastics, those who were offering teachings. And so it's that, that river or that system of giving and receiving, that system of mutual generosity that has literally carried the teachings heart to heart, mind to mind for 2,600 years. There's never been a, a charge for the actual teachings up to this day. Now that financial model is very challenging where those who offer are, I'm here because people have been generous to me. But there's, there's always an insecurity about whether that, we, well, that river will keep going, whether um, those who offer will be supported by those. It's a vulnerable situation. It's been a beautiful thing for me. It's affected the way that I handle resources um, all through the years, knowing that what I actually spend at the grocery store is not disconnected from those who have supported me. And so it's a, it's a beautiful thing on one hand, but it's a vulnerable thing. And we'd love to see that spirit of generosity in regard to teachings and practices take root in our culture so that we can l- keep this, to s- at least to some degree, in a, um, a much more of a generosity or gift economy rather than a fee-for-service economy. So the way that works here is what you paid today uh, none of it goes to me. And that's generally how the, uh, the teachings have been offered here. There may be a change in the model in the future because of, because of the um, financial demands of being a, mostly lay teachers trying to be able to um, feel enough support to be able to keep teaching. And the younger teachers are actually having a harder time with that. I've been doing it now 31 years, so I've been... I've, I've, and most of us have also managed to, to supplement our support with uh, other things like, a, in this case, many of our, my colleagues are authors, or, and not, I've supported myself being a counselor, and now I've written a book. I'm not sure, I don't know to what extent that would be of financial benefit, but it is fun. Uh, but nevertheless, the way it's set up is at the end of the day, or right now, the I put out, just like the monks did when they were going on alms run, I put out the begging bowl and invite you as your practice of generosity to, if you feel to, to offer something, not a tip, you know, you don't just reach in your pocket and throw something. It's to really consider wanting to participate in this river of teachings and wanting to support the next group that I'm able to sit with and to use it as a practice of cultivating generosity which means to, if you are, it's, it's completely vo- voluntary, but if you do offer, that it, you offer to the extent that it actually feels generous. The Buddha talked about the joy of thinking about giving, the joy of the act of giving, the joy of the memory of having given. You can kind of test it. Does, that, does it bring me joy? And at first it may feel a little awkward, but play with it a little bit. But that is how we function, and uh, you're already here, Believe it or not, you know some of you. There is a sliding scale, and and in terms of the basic requisites of running the center, there's a sliding scale, and um, there's a big there's scholarships and people volunteer. There's many ways of of coming here uh, that's not so dependent on on finances. 
And also what you pay, even at the highest, doesn't cover the cost of what it actually costs for you to be here. Other people have given to the operating budget of Spirit Rock to allow the the basic cost to remain relatively low for yogis. So we're, this place is built on generosity. The buildings, everything was not built on the tuition. It's built on the on the um, generosity that has come after people have practiced. So hope you enjoy that system. It's weird at first, maybe, but uh, it's beautiful. I'd love to see it take root in our culture. And fee-for-service, it's the way we run, but that's it, the way the culture runs, but it's... It, it kind of ends when it's over. This is more of a relationship. So thank you for listening. We now have about, I'd say about 50 minutes for lunch. So at about, at about five minutes to two, we will meet again. And this afternoon, we will elaborate a lot more on the whole construction of sense of self, working with mental states, moods, uh, thoughts, images. Please. Yeah, there will be the big outside gong and gong in here to remind you to come back. Please be mindful during lunch. Keep the continuity of practice going so that there's no break. Wherever you go, there you are. Anyway, thanks for the morning and please continue. So I'm delighted to know that you had unbroken mindfulness during the lunch hour. Total continuity of awareness. And you, are, you have now arrived on your cushion with the full momentum. <laughs> Just teasing. I would like to let us have that experience of continuity of attention, of feeling what it's like to really cook in uh, the continuity of awareness and kindness very much the, the formal practice periods can function like putting a kettle on the stove. And if you keep the kettle on the stove, even at a, a, relax, a soft boil, you know, a soft, a slightly warm temperature, the, the water boils, the, whatever it is, cooks. But if you keep taking the kettle off the stove, it doesn't... Um, Things don't cook. So this is the difference between continuity of awareness and what our mind is usually doing, which is a a moment here and a moment there. So this is a rare opportunity to really let yourself keep the kettle on the stove. So regardless of whether we are sitting or walking or even listening, even when you're listening and maybe even speaking, that you keep some semblance of mindful attention to your body, some orientation to real time. And your body is a wonderful anchor for that. So this afternoon, we will continue to use our body and our breath as our, as our primary anchor, our home base, because that harmonizing of mind and body is so essential for clearing our senses so that when other experiences become stronger than the experience of breathing, we're able to notice them with some sense of, of embodied presence, some kind of, some kind of stability and some kind of clarity. 
So it seems that when mind and body are together, there is a there is a harmonizing, and when we're walking, each time you you put your attention on the step you're taking or that you're noticing moment to moment what's happening, clearly comprehending what's happening, you're literally cleaning your senses. And so when once your senses are more clean, when a sound arises, you hear it more acutely. When a sight, something you see, you see it more vividly. When smell, and you may have even tasted your food more intimately during lunch, just from the habit of bringing your attention into the same location as your body for the morning. So this can build in your life so that you begin to appreciate the amazing nature of being who and what you are that is not so dependent on your accomplishments. That's just the fact that you were born, the fact that you are a unique expression of life, an individual, just your individualness, is enough. You do not have to justify yourself. And yet, our personality view is always saying, it's always comparing, judging, evaluating, how high, how low. Have you all heard of, you all heard of Rumi? Rumi wrote a poem called Tending Two Shops, and there's a stanza in that poem where he says, live in the nowhere where you came from, which means that place in you that's not so defined, where you're right here. Live in the nowhere where you came from, even though you have an address here, which means your name and your ideas. Live in the nowhere where you came from, even though you have an address here. You have eyes that see from that nowhere, and you have eyes that judge distances, how high, how low. You own two shops, and you keep running back and forth. Try to close the one that's a fearful trap, always getting smaller, checkmate this, checkmate that. Keep open the one where you're not selling fish hooks anymore. You're the free swimming fish. So the free swimming fish is who you are without reference to your, um, to your um, measurements. Just yourself. What inspired me, and people who sat with me know this, what inspired me to, to tune into that, that amazing nature was partly you know, my own experience in practice and in life, but it was being a father and watching this little being emerge who was just a perfectly unique expression of life could not help being who she was or is, brought together by all the circumstances of life through no fault of her own. And has a certain essence, quality to her that is not like anybody else, nor should be. And yet I've also watched that same person, my daughter Molly, who has what I've often described as molliness. And each of us has our own version of molliness. But I've seen her also look around, seeing her friends. And when she was even three years old, she looked around, she had these little ringlet curls, and she looked around, that one's got blonde hair. 
she started pulling on her hair, straightening it. Thinking, I should, be, I should have straight blonde hair. And then she started comparing. And then she started developing the psychological view of herself as somebody who's comparable, judgeable, analyzable. And that's the view of self. That's the, what we call the ego, the, the self-referencing, who I think I am. And once she built that house, that's a house of um, fragility. There's no way of finding security in comparing. Because somebody's always above, somebody's always below, somebody's always equal to. And the Buddha talked about three kinds of pride or comparing that we fall into and build our identity around. The first one he called atimana, which is the superiority view. I am above. The second one he called amana, which is the inferiority view. I'm less than, lower than. And then there was a third kind of pride, which he called mana, which is the equality view. I'm the same as. Even that is a view and obscures the, as they talk about it in the Zen tradition, the suchness of our being. The, the, the Buddha was called Tathagata. You ever hear that word? Tathagata. Tata means suchness, just the isness of things. And Tathagata is the one who knows suchness. So anytime you open to just your suchness, just what you are on present evidence, not what you think you are, then you can begin to really see the difference between the bird and what the field guidebook says. And you can start to believe the bird. But at the same time, our practice does two things. It reintroduces us to the bird, to our suchness, to our molliness. Just us as we are, are that unique, miraculous expression of life that is not a mistake and is not even our fault. Because we were born because of non-personal conditions. Our parents looked at each other with that twinkle in their eye, but our parents' parents looked at them, looked at each other with their twinkle in their eye. And our parents' parents, they came together maybe because of the village or the, or the community or the culture or the language or the, or the race or whatever it was. What brought us into being was, were causes and conditions that have no, absolutely no beginning. So in that way, we are It's a way of understanding ego. Ego is only an idea that makes us believe that we somehow exist apart from that flow of conditions, that flow of life. And we tend to believe, the more we live in that imaginary me, we tend to believe that we are the one wave that's gotten separated from the ocean. 
somehow cut off from life. When in fact we are both formed by life and we're forming life. We are, we are part of what Thich Nhat Hanh calls inner being. As he puts it, I know I have that here. You and me and I, you are me and I am you. Isn't it obvious that we inter are? You cultivate the flower in yourself so that I will be beautiful. I transform the garbage in myself so you will not have to suffer. I support you, you support me. I'm in the world to offer you peace. You are in this world to bring me joy. So this speaks of an understanding is that this notion of, of our, that our ego mind gets bound up in that we are somehow exist independently apart from the flow of everything that's influencing us, that that is a kind of delusion. And so part of our delusion is that we think we are ultimately separate. We are individual. We are relatively separate. But because we have a view of ourselves as excessively separate, we suffer a lot. And we blame ourselves a lot for what we experience. Not recognizing that what we experience is the, is the confluence of many conditions. Now in African tribal culture, of course I'm not an expert at this, but I've read some teachings. It's implicit, it's, it's, it's implicit in the way that the culture, the villages function, that, that when somebody expresses something, that they're not ju- it's just not that it's not just them it's the whole village i'll read to you as we have seen our modern disembodiment means that people live largely within the conceptual world of their own making attempting to handle experiences by fitting them into the continuous conceptual narrative of their i or ego the more disembodied we are the more strident and compulsive this incessant narrative becomes In addition, the more disembodied we are, the more isolated and disconnected we are, not just from our emotions, but from a feeling of connection with other people and the larger world. Our disconnection and isolation are reflected in the high degree of personalism. Everything is about me, narcissism, and individualism. I'm a free agent with no inherent ties or obligations to anyone or anything found in modern societies. The personalism and individualism that mark modern people is, in other words, a direct function of their disembodiment. It appears to be true that emotions seem especially overwhelming and frightening for us modern people because of our overly disembodied, individualistic, personalistic understanding of them. In other cultures, emotions are often understood within a much larger, less individualistic context. For example, here's a teacher named Maladoma Somme speaks of emotions within a different, more transcendent frame of reference. He says that when someone in his village is taken over by a strong emotion, the entire village attends to that person. The reason is that for the Dagara people of Maladoma's homeland, strong emotion is never about just one person alone but rather about the village community itself. In his or her highly charged emotional state, a certain person is understood to be giving birth to something that the entire village 
needs to know and needs to address. So when you spoke today about your longing, that's something the entire, that's, that's not just individual, that's the entire village needs to know about this insatiable hunger. The, the Buddha described the, that craving as he called it unslakeable thirst. But that's, but the way, the fact that we experience that to such a profound effect is really our whole culture. It's not just you. Uh, and it's partly personalizing it, thinking it is only ourselves and that everybody else is, you know, happily going along that exacerbates the pain that's already heavy enough. So it's seeing through that separateness that opens up that door of self-compassion and understanding. So that's part of the wisdom part that then allows us to, in our meditation practice, meet the world of emotions, which is a big part of what flows through our consciousness, to be able to meet that world of emotions with kindness instead of, oh, here's another moment of irritation, here's another moment of boredom, here's another moment of anger, of fear, of sadness, of grief, of longing, and, and it's just me bound up in my own personal suffering. If we can understand it in that larger context, then the natural response of the heart is mercy, loving the house that Eco built. So let's meet our mental states and moods and emotions with loving kindness, okay? We'll sit now. Just remembering that that connection to life. You know, when we... I don't know if you've heard the poem, The Little Duck, where he cuddles in the swells of the ocean... And the way it's described is it says he eases himself into the boundless right where it touches him. And so that's what we're doing. We're easing ourselves into life right where it touches us. So once again, we find an upright posture, shifting side to side, front to back, till we find that center point. And once we settle into that place of balance and ease, we let our body go. We let it be just as it is supported by the earth, aware of the fact that we are aware, letting our awareness be open, receptive, impartial like the sky, but imbued with kindness. And we bring kind attention to our sitting body as it sits, the body that carries us through this life without which we could not even be aware. We bring kind attention to these senses, 
ears, eyes, nose, tongue, skin. Open to and welcoming to life. And in the middle of it, we feel our life breath. We connect with that and sustain our connection. That breath that we experience moves inside of you and moves inside of me. Another reminder of our inter-being. We sustain as long as it lasts. And then when sounds arise and become stronger than the breath, we become aware of hearing. We let the sounds appear and vanish on their own without interference without reaching for or pushing away any sound. And they will vanish and then they will reappear. Other sensations, pleasant and unpleasant, will arise and be known like stars flickering in an evening sky. Some pleasant, some unpleasant. And we will also be visited by unbidden states of mind and attitudes. We may feel irritation, aversion. We may feel wanting, grasping. We may feel doubt. We may feel dullness. We may feel restlessness and agitation, other moods of happiness and sadness, joy, sorrow, grief, fear. Any of these can become, can arise and become stronger than the breath. And when they do, they often arise with a little narrative but we expand beyond the narrative and we feel the experience of desire. What does wanting feel like? The objects are endless. What does longing feel like? Often has a physical corollary. We connect with it in our body and be able to inwardly know, oh, wanting is like this. We notice worry is like this feels tension in our heart, tightness in our belly, anger. You've heard the expression burning with anger, burning with desire. There's often a physical experience. We sustain our awareness with the physical effect of our mental states, our moods and our emotions, and we notice what happens to them all by themselves. We recognize them as changing conditions like the weather. Sometimes there's happy weather, sometimes sad. But we not only do we recognize them as changing conditions, we recognize them as not able to define us. 
what is changing cannot be me, cannot be mine. This I am not. And to the degree that I identify with these emotions and states of mind, I suffer because I fall into delusion. So slowly, slowly we open to whatever experience is pleasant, or is present. <laughs> Feel its changing nature, recognizing its selflessness, how it's arising and passing of itself. And as the moods fade away, as the sensations change and become less predominant or compelling, as the sounds fade away, in that openness, in behalf of staying anchored to this living present, we connect again with our body, connect again with our breath. Everything is welcome. As Rumi put it, even if there are a crowd of sorrows that empty your house of its furniture, meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. They may be clearing you out for some new delight. Just this moment, just this breath, or whatever it is that is predominant. Soft mind, but alert. Gentle attention, but precise. If a strong emotion arises that you do not feel that you can accommodate, and after you've recognized its presence, feel free to shift your attention momentarily back to your breath or to other sensations in your body, just to remind you that not everything is this strong emotion possible to give it some space. The art of practice is the art of making space. 
Otherwise, just be with what is present. And know that there's nothing to do about what presents itself and there's nothing to undo. Everything occurs naturally.
You may not notice any particular mental states or moods or emotions, but you may be aware of subtle attitudes of mind. You may notice the attitude of of trying to make something happen. This is greed in the mind, kind of mental state of craving. You may notice the attitude of resisting, contentiousness, aversion in the mind. You may be narrating or personalizing your experience, making it all about me. That's delusion in the mind. You may be kind of cloudy or oblivious. That's delusion in the mind also. Just noticing these colorings of the mind. Don't need to do anything about them. Just notice. Or whatever is predominant. Or just this breath. Just this moment.
So good news or bad news? Any questions or clarifications, working with mental states, moods and emotions, uh, descriptions? Again, it's likely that if your comment or question may be of some benefit to someone else, so don't hesitate, don't hesitate. What did you notice, please? What about sleepiness? What about sleepiness? <laughs> tell, could you tell me, are you feeling sleepy? Yeah. On and off. On and off. Okay, here's the, here's the, the situation. Most people who come to a retreat or engage in a practice period for a day or longer, we'll find that at the beginning, there is an, the two most common mental states that we will fluctuate between are dullness or sleepiness and restlessness. And more often than not, the first more prominent state is sleepiness. Why? Remember we talked about against the stream. The stream of our habits, the stream of our life, the way that we live in this insane asylum is evaluating ourselves basically on and measuring ourselves based on how busy we are and wearing busyness as though it's a source of pride. As Amy Krauss Rosenthal put it, have people always been this busy? Did cavemen think they were busy too? This week is crazy. I've got about 10 caves to draw on. Can I meet you by the fire next week? Yeah. She, she attributes the, 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 this excessive busyness to the, the creation of coffee bars and their luscious byproduct, productivity, the joy of doing, crossing off, And the way she talks about it, she says, as kids, our stock answer to every question, what'd you do at school today? What's happening? Nothing. She says, I'm starting to think that like youth, the word nothing is wasted on the young. We need to reintroduce it into our grown-up vernacular. Nothing, nothing. So we are, because of our excessive busyness and rushing, that sometimes doesn't necessarily have to do with speed, has to do with a kind of mental state, we are exhausted. Our vital energy has gotten uh, diminished. We're not nourished. We don't take enough time. I always say that paradoxically, if you don't take care of yourself, your individuality, you end up stuck in it. If you take care of yourself, then you, have, you just have a lot more to, to give to this world. So most of the time, people come to a retreat. And the first thing that happens when you enter a room like this and, it's a, and there are people together, quiet, alone together. There is a, 
a safety and a quiet that sometimes simulates the to our brain what it's like when we're about to go to sleep. And we begin to feel first and foremost the quieting, the tranquility of what happens when our mind settles into our body. But if the tranquility that we experience is not balanced by vital energy, at Spirit Rock we, we describe that as looking like the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem. So what we're doing, not only are we nurturing this kind of tranquility, but we're also, by building, by continuity of meditation, we're actually building our vital energy back. But you may not notice that the first day, during a day long. You may notice the predominance of, um, of, tra- of dullness, what the Tibetans call s- uh, stupid meditation which is actually highly valued because you're, you're getting a healing. It's kind of restful. But at the same time, there's not much awareness. So we tr- slowly, in the moments that we, are, um, that we are awake, that we try to exploit that by being as attentive as we can and that why it's so important to do the walking very thoroughly when we walk and to, even while you're sitting, to, uh, to maybe even stand up just that little extra energy to hold your body up will sometimes balance the tranquility. So doing standing practice or if you need to, other antidotes of mindfully pulling on your ears. Opening the eyes momentarily very wide, taking in as much light as possible. Other traditional antidotes are splashing water on the face, you know, looking up at a light. Um, what they, what one teacher in Thailand did is had his students sit on the edge of a well. <laughs> we don't have a well here. So the opposite is also true on the first day, as I mentioned. Very often that our we have very low tranquility because our bodies are so tight, and yet we have enough energy. But if you have energy and low tra- and low tranquility. High, high energy, lower tranquility, you have restlessness. So we're always balancing in our practice. It doesn't stay balanced for a sustained period, but we, it slowly grows where there's a balance between tranquility and energy. And if you were to practice a longer practice period or if you did a very strong daily practice, you would find that you'd have more periods where you weren't falling on your face. So short question, long answer. Anyone else, please? So, uh, this morning you were talking about the greed and wanting more pleasant experiences when one's in having a pleasant experience. And I'm also a greed type, so I've experienced that a lot when I'm enjoying myself. I w- want more. So the question is, um, I recently had pneumonia, and it was an opportunity to break a habit of drinking wine every night at like 5 o'clock having a drink. And it's been just great. And things got very simple. Like you said, I've been meditating a lot and just taking care of myself. And the life has gotten very sweet and very simple and peaceful. So now you want to figure out how to muck it up. Exactly. (laughs) So So when I reintroduce this wine, it's been my... Why? Well, 
<laughs> I enjoy it, and I think of it as like having a piece of chocolate. So uh -huh. isn't it so? It's been my trainings from 1984 that if we are enjoying something, if we're having a pleasant experience, and really pay attention to it moment by moment without thinking, oh, I might want more, or I wish this could last, but just really being with it thoroughly. Yeah. And that's like eating, that when it's over, the one glass of wine, it's a complete experience yeah. in and of itself, and there's no remnants, and there's no, and it could be sex, yes. and Yes. Yes, and each time we gratify that desire, and this is not saying you shouldn't, but it's, you have to be your own authority about this, but each time you gratify that desire may be a complete experience, and it may not in that moment lead to having the second, but it, the, the pleasure of that fades. It has a shelf life, and May not, maybe not the next moment, but that the pleasure of that plants the seed of liking, plants the seed of wanting. And even though there is a cessation of the desire and the, enough wisdom not to take the second one, you're still planting the seed of wanting to do it the next day. So what would be the difference of that or having a, a piece of chocolate and not eating the whole candy bar? I think any measure of restraint is wholesome. It's good. So that you're, you're less a slave to the... But nevertheless, it is not without its karmic fruit. It's, it still creates a continuity of becoming, of that bhava, of, of looking forward, of the next thing, of associating our well-being with having that thing. So then, what happens the next day? I, you, don't, you don't like what I'm saying, but I'm just telling you what the teachings are. The next day, the next day, how would you be if you didn't have that? Well, I've gone through this month now, and I've noticed that it's a, a habit. So I'll be doing something like, if I go to a day long, I'm used to going home, and then to make the experience even more wonderful... I have a glass of wine. <laughs> it's like more joy, okay? That's the greed thing. Now, I'm, so now I haven't been doing that. And what I do is go home, and it's an opportunity. I go, ah, I'm feeling that feeling. Like, oh, wouldn't it be nice to have a glass of wine? And well, so, that's, yeah, that's what's so it great that I get that feeling, and I'm not going to do it. And then I have a glass of water, and I go, oh, well, that, that idea went away. Like it's, okay, great. It just passes. It passes okay. quickly. But the fact that that comes is that's a mind moment that you have that's absent of peace. That moment, oh, it'd be nice to have a glass. I'm not saying it's a terrible thing. It's not a heinous thing. But nevertheless, it is a, you know, anything we have, the less we have to think about, the happier we are. But how does that differ from, oh, I'd like to take a walk in the sun. That sounds so wonderful. Tell me. It's the... <laughs> it's, how is it different? It's, it's the same in one hand, and it's different in another. One is a, a little bit more of a slippery slope that leads to, <laughs> to a kind of addictive habit. Okay. Again, I get back to the, the, uh, the basic difference between the 
these are the, I'm just going to share the teachings. The Buddha talked about, he was called Sukhiya, or the happy one. Now you may, you may want to be happy. Everybody wants to be happy. Isn't it true? That the deepest longing that we have that we share is to be happy and to be free of suffering. That's what makes us, if you're not one of, if you don't have that, you're not one of us. But we often don't think very deeply into what happiness actually is. And of course, culturally, we treat happiness as being able to replicate pleasurable experiences as many times as possible. But what the Buddha, what the Buddha described, that kind of happiness is the happiness, and maybe this is too strong a word for it, but he described that kind of happiness as the happiness of slavery or bondage. So he basically said there are two kinds of main kinds of happiness. There is what's called worldly happiness. Amazing capacity that we have to enjoy wine, a beautiful walk in the park, the joy of solitude, the joy of good company, the joy of a a day at Spirit Rock, the listening to the turkeys squawk or whatever they do. What What do they do? Gobble, right, thank you. <laughs> you can say, I don't, you can tell I don't hang with the turkey. So, <laughs> All of that is a beautiful part of our life and it is the fruit to be able to enjoy the, the pleasures of this world is a fruit of, being, uh, of having our senses open. And our, the capacity to have our senses open depends on being a good person. Why do I say that? If you're constantly reverberating from something you said or did or harmed yourself or harmed another, you're, not, you're, you're so preoccupied that your, your senses are not open to really taking in the, the amazing beauty of life and all its pleasures. So that worldly happiness that the Buddha described is the f- fruit of a purity of action. So it's not put down in any way. But it's but he also described it as, um, as happiness that depends on satisfying hunger. He called it the happiness of hunger, the happiness of bondage, the happiness of slavery. So that kind of pleasure, as wonderful as it is, it's subsumed under the umbrella of what the Buddha described as dukkha, unreliable, unsatisfactory, leaves in its wake a sense of uh, when it's over. And then plants that seed of having to keep on the wheel of continually having to replicate in order to find... And so it doesn't make anybody truly happy. So hang on a second. So he contrasted that with what he... That's called lokia sukha. Lokia sukha. Worldly happiness, conditional happiness, a happiness that depends on conditions the way you want them. Happiness of bondage. He contrasted that with what he called Lokutra Sukha. Lokutra means uh, unconditional happiness. A happiness that does not depend on conditions. Unstuck from the world. Beyond the power and influence of circumstances. A well-being that is unshakable. It doesn't depend on where you are or what you're eating or not eating what you're drinking or not drinking. He says, if in your meditation practice, you are looking for 
for worldly happiness, pleasurable experience, you will be really unhappy as a meditator. You will be dissatisfied. If, on the other hand, you are aiming for this unconditional happiness, unstuck from the world, the happiness of freedom, the happiness of recognizing your, your liberated nature, awakening, then with that aim, with that clarity of, of aim and intention, all of the other kinds of pleasure in this world will, will arise in that. You will still experience all the joys of this world, but you will understand their three things about the pleasures of the world. Their pleasure, their danger and defect. And you will understand what it's like to be free of your dependency. And unless you really understand that f- those three elements, their pleasure, their danger, and, their, and, the, and the freedom, you're just going to spin, likely, in that little gerbil wheel of, of bondage. And you will miss the ever-present wakefulness that is, that is the, the real source of, ha- of true happiness. So do you want to be truly happy or do you want to be bound on an endless uh, wheel of dissatisfaction? That's the question that we have to ask ourselves. Please. Well, like I said, if you, if you, no, you can't, like I said, if you aim for the, the second kind, the unconditional, you still experience all the pleasures of the world. There's a beautiful teaching from a Zen teacher named Suzuki Roshi where he said, renunciation or restraint, renunciation is not giving up the things of this world, but in understanding that they go away, in being very attuned to the unreliability, the emptiness, the impermanence of whatever, we, whatever we're chasing after. And, but it's a slippery slope and we're easily we're easily seduced by the notion that we're actually, that there's no residue to uh, some kind of addictive pattern. And there is. I was kind of thinking of like vacations, mm-hmm. right? Which is vacations are marvelous. If it's icing on the cake, great. But the tendency is, is to is to postpone our well-being and happiness till we satisfy that hunger. So the teachings are saying, be first things first is resolve true happiness and then go about your life and all its pattern, all its creative issues, all of it, all of what you need to do and become, but without the demand that it has to make you happy. Because that is slavery. When you think, when you... When you postpone being well until, you, until the weekend or until the vacation, you're literally practicing every day putting yourself in a state of suspended happiness. And we tend to do that even though there's, there's pleasure associated with looking forward to things. We often don't recognize that the underlying experience is one of a slight bit of tension. It's a beautiful thought that I'm, lo- beautiful thing I'm looking forward to but I actually won't be able to experience it until then. And then our body goes into tension. So we literally practice tension a lot of the time 
please. intuition, thinking, or feeling, and you have a dominance of one of those. So if you are a sensation person, which I am, I would have to go through a lot of suffering to, to give up that part of my character to, you know, embrace more of the spiritual life. Again, again, you're dividing the spiritual life from sensation, and it's the sensa- the the sensations that you experience are your spiritual life. There's no dividing line there. And so, and giving them up, it's not about giving them up. That, that last passage, renunciation is not giving up the things of this world, but in meeting them with wise understanding. So you just keep experiencing the sensate world to your heart's content, but not expecting it to make you happy. <laughs> but Nothing can, as one teacher put it, nothing can make you happier than you are, fundamentally. That all search for happiness is misery and leads to more misery. That the only happiness worth that name is, is the natural happiness of being conscious, being aware. So, so you don't have to sound too much, you don't have to do so much. <laughs> Just learn from your experience, moment to moment. And if it's through the body, through sensing... That's your domain of practice. Does that speak to your question or no? Yeah. Oh, good. Please. Hi. Um, I have a question regarding the unique expression that we talked about and how each of us have a unique constellation. Yes. Um, I I will give a concrete example. Um, For some time, I've I've lived up here in the Bay Area for almost 18 years now. And for some time in the last few years, I've been really figuring out whether I should go back to L.A. and move back in or live closer to my family, which is where they live. But here's the interesting part for me is that I know deep in my body and mind that L.A. is not the right place for me. (laughs) And uh, I really love it up here. I love the Bay Area. This is my home. However, it's figuring out whether or not there's ego aspect involved with regards to, I know in my unique expression, I feel at home here. Whereas in L.A., I don't feel at home. However... I go where you feel at home. Okay. <laughs> Period. Right. It's just... Uh, the. You don't int- try to fit a, a square peg into a round hole. I really appreciate that a lot. Yeah. We, that's part of recognizing your natural expression of life, is that it won't look like anybody else's. And the world, see, the, the biggest yeah. thing about because of the confusion that we get because we're socialized as well as individual sure. is that the tendency when we're part of a cult or a culture, right. which is a cult in a way, is that the tendency is, is to become bound up in, in trying to fit in and get along. But the trying to fit in and get along gets taken to such a a um, an extreme degree that we lose contact with that that individual essence. We're so busy trying to fit in. And what turns out, what happens when people start to wake up is they shift from that complete external dependency to an internal sense of dependency, of, of self-knowledge, of understanding. And it turns out that... N- there's not one person, if they really look at what their natural expression is, 
There's not one person that actually says, I fit in. You'll say, I don't fit in. I'm different. I'm unique. But once you surrender to your unique expression, the world starts to, instead of you always adjusting for everybody else, the world starts to adjust to you. Mm. And so it's paradoxical. People who don't listen to their inner voice or inner yearnings or their natural expression end up stuck in them feeling isolated, separate. People, people who keep living in that kind of congruence, tend to, life tends to start to support you. I That's really just a hunch. That. Yeah, I appreciate that. I guess the challenge I have is how much of it is, you know, the, the, we talked about external factors and our dependency on external factors to make us feel stable. And so that's, there's that slippery slope of, does it matter so much where I am, you know? And so that's the that's well. The sometimes it sometimes it does, hmm. sometimes it doesn't, and that's what we that's part of our self discovery. Okay, thank yeah. you. I, I just uh, there's no objective view about that. That's something. Again, each of us is our own authority. Please. The phrase that comes to mind when I when I listen to your discussion is. To follow the path with heart, you're the, following the path with heart. Um, can't go wrong with that. No. Thank you. Yeah. So the mention of unconditional happiness earlier, and it is impermanent, correct? Or it can also be impermanent as well. And the unconditional happiness can be impermanent as well, correct? Well, unconditional happiness, if it's impermanent, it's conditional. <laughs> if, it's, if it's unconditional, it's, it's immovable. However, that makes sense. if we're not we may not always be aware of that conditional happiness, even though it's, <laughs> it's lots of paradox in practice. So, in other words, the way you could put it is the unconditional does not depend on circumstances. However, only those who condition their mind to pay attention tend to recognize that. <laughs> that, makes sense. that makes sense. Okay, last one, please. I was just wondering, do you think most people in the world pass away without experiencing unconditional happy, love or happiness? Well... I cannot speak for <laughs> I don't know but I I know uh, I do imagine or sense or that no some people die very at the time of death they they open to what's whatever that that unconditional dimension of reality and and that process of opening can either be done very gracefully with a lot of ease, that transition made very easy, 
because that identity has, because throughout their life they have, or either at the end the circumstances are such that they let go easily, or throughout their life they have nurtured a remembering of what, of uh, to hold, to treat the world lightly because it's changing. And so they can make that transition very well. Others who may, depending on what they, where they have tethered their identity, what they, if they, you know, we basically identify with, we tend to identify with our bodies and it's not a very reliable source of identity because it's, it's always changing, it's aging. We tend to identify with our moods, they're always changing. And we tend to identify with, with, um, with our views and opinions. So somebody's always disagreeing. <laughs> so there's a tendency to, to hook our identity to things that can't really give us much relief. And, and in, the, in dealing with that kind of insecurity, with an identity that's tied to our body, to time that's always running out, to views and opinions that somebody's disagreeing with, we tend to get more and more tight and reactive. And so we, to the degree that a person holds on to those things, to all the ways that we tend to identify ourselves with, with success or with praise or... Uh, you know, the, the dying away, the, the passing away process will be, you know, if you've really identified a lot with those things that aren't very reliable, you might have a harder time. So a lot of people would, will talk about the meditation practice is a practice of dying. A pr- dying moment to moment. So that, in the other words, you've heard the expression, die before you're dead. And do it now. And be dead. He says, quietness is the surest sign that you've died, Rumi says. Your old life was a frantic running from silence. Slide out the side, die, and be dead. And then he ends his poem where he talks about this. He says, ah, the speechless full moon comes out now. (laughs) So I I don't know. (laughs) It's a great question. So we, I want to continue because I, during the next, uh, after the next sitting, I want to describe more about the, the identity view. And during the next, next instruction, we'll work with thoughts and images, which is a lot of where I, identity gets bound up. And so I, I'd like us to have about a 15-minute walking period just to get some fresh air, but keep walking moment by moment, stay connected to your body, Step out of any kind of view about yourself and just experience life intimately. Take care equally with the transition to walking and walk to and fro step by step. And I will, I'm going to sit here and, and I'd actually like to be available for anybody who I have not checked in with or as many as I can. Thanks for staying with the day. At this point, it's very easy to to associate your happiness with the end of it. <laughs> so it really is heroic and courageous to stay with it. I appreciate that a lot. Just a reminder that this, even though I was using this as the begging bowl, that was more of a metaphor. 
that this is not the Donna basket. The, the, the Donna basket is out. There are two Donna baskets. So whoever put, whoever put money here, it's going to affect the way the gong sounds. <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, it's totally fine. I'll, I'll transfer it to the other basket. But <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> So I think we'll sit first and talk later. And just a little bit of prelude. Clearly, if we are going to love the house that ego built, we want to be able to see the way that a sense of ourselves is often constructed in the realm of the thinking mind. However, it's also important to know that a thought of myself is not myself. It's a thought. And as a thought... It is a a discharge. It's an empty bubble. It's an insubstantial. It's like a cloud that is floating through the sky. It has no, like a cloud, it has no root. It has no home. It's like a, as the the metaphor that's used in the, one of the traditions, it's like a footprint of a bird in emptiness. Thoughts have no substantiality. And to see a thought as such allows us to see Very clearly, a thought of myself is just a thought. As one of my teachers said, a thought of your mother is not your mother. However, we can have these battles in our mind with our mothers, constructing her and making her real and and feeling many things. And that's a wonderful thing that we can think about ourselves, think about our mothers, think about things. It's a wonderful capacity. It's awesome. So the point of practice is not to get rid of thoughts, but it's to make a shift from being chronically lost in thought, absorbed in thought, identified with our thoughts, misperceiving our thoughts, to be able to notice, oh, this is the thinking mind thinking. And this is what we do in our practice. When thoughts become stronger than the breath, or become the predominant experience, We try to meet those thoughts to the extent that we've developed some continuity of attention. We try to meet those thoughts with that same kind of attention as we met a sensation or a sound. A thought is to our door of perception called mind, like a sound is to the ear, a smell is to the nose, a taste is to the tongue, a sensation is to the body. It is a sense experience. And so the content in our meditation practice, we are more interested in the process of thinking than we are in the content of the thought. The process of thinking is the same as the process of sound, the process of smell. Smell emerges, it arises, there's a moment of, of pleasure, un- unpleasantness, if it's, depending on what your association is with that smell, but the smell fades away. 
Everything appears, disappears. Same with the thinking mind thinking. So if we get bound up in the content of our thoughts, we will miss the common characteristic of thought that makes it similar to everything else. So when you can see that a thought appears and disappears, you can see that a thought of a thought is not yourself. It's just a, a changing condition, just a cloud passing through an empty sky. However, we can see that certain thoughts have, depending on their feeling tone that accompanies them, they tend to be stickier than others. And often the sticky ones tend to be the ones that are associated with, with um, desire, aversions and irritations, fears, associated with, with uh, judgment, comparisons, Ones where we are attempting to, uh, to equalize, to put ourselves above, below or equal. We're attempting to find some kind of relief. And so we can actually feel the effect of our thinking mind. We can see that our feelings will often express themselves in thoughts. Our thoughts will often have a residue of feeling. So there's often an interaction between our thoughts and feelings. And we don't try to stop any of that. We try to recognize that our thoughts think themselves and they fade away. And they rise based on conditions, on conditioning, on impressions. Sometimes the thoughts that float through our mind are basically excerpts of a movie we saw the night before or something somebody said to us, uh, something we heard. It can be anything. 90, someone said that we have 65,000 thoughts every day and that 90% are repeats from the day before. So do you think that you would intentionally think 65,000 thoughts, most of them repeats? (laughs) So part of understanding egolessness, selflessness, is seeing the selflessness of the thinking mind. Now, paradoxically, Your thoughts, based on your individuality, your thoughts are different than my thoughts. So in that way, they're very personal. But what we see meditatively, that even our so-called personal thoughts, when we notice their behavior, we see that they're impersonal in that they arise and they pass by themselves. And there's no way in the course of seeing the flow of thinking to find any self in them. Just changing conditions. And that can be a real relief to just let the thinking mind think. Now when I say that, it doesn't mean to start thinking about your thinking mind. To extend the thoughts as you notice them. So not to intentionally extend the thoughts, but to notice what happens when the light shines on that that mist of thought. Thoughts as they appear and disappear, they tend to evaporate. Now, thoughts that tend to be connected to strong feelings, they tend to start proliferating. We tend to, especially if mindfulness doesn't rise up to notice them, we tend to wander a long time in that state of delusion or confusion. At whatever point you wake up to the fact that you've either been lost or you're now present, appreciate that. 
The fact that mindfulness doesn't show up all the time to meet the thought, it's just because of conditioning. You haven't trained it enough to show up. But it's not your fault. It's just conditions. So hopefully everything you see in the practice will remind you to stop taking it all so personally. Stop blaming yourself for something that's really based on conditions. There's so many. I need three days for this. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) So. So again, once we notice the thinking mind, you will start to, as we start to include that in our meditative awareness, you will start to see certain themes that repeat themselves over and over those 90% repeats. And most of us individually have certain top tunes. So mine is planning. Most people is planning, remembering, judging, comparing, analyzing, interpreting, rehearsing. Did I say rehearsing already? Reminiscing, fantasizing, If in the course of noticing the thinking mind, you start seeing those top tunes, just as a way of saying, I see you, what your mind is doing, you can apply a soft mental label, not in order for them to go away, but just to to give yourself a little space and just notice, oh, planning, planning, fantasizing. It just, you're just acknowledging mindful attention has arisen to meet this thought. And if mindful attention rises to meet that thought, then I will see that the planning mind plans, fantasizing mind fantasizes, happens all by itself, and it passes away. Please. When you turn toward a, a, a real-time emotion and the moment you named it, it split. Before you could even name it. Well, anything that you draw attention to cannot withstand the, the not... What happens is when you meet something with attention, you're no longer identified with it, you're no longer grasping at it, you're no longer pushing it away. And in that moment... You create the conditions for that experience to liberate itself. And what you see is every experience self-liberates. So everything does that. What keeps things sticky and around is grasping, condemning, and not seeing what's there and becoming very identified with it. So what about that? You're You're having a reaction, it looks like. You don't deal, meditatively, we don't deal with anything. We just try to learn from what's happening. We try to see it clearly. Meditative awareness does not, is not look seeking a solution. It's just wanting to understand how it, how the process of mind works. And the, the, the assumption is that when you see that more clearly, you take things a lot less personally. So you're a lot less reactive. And if you're a lot less reactive, you tend to be able to solve issues a little bit more gracefully. Okay, I think we have to, we're going to sit now.
Okay, please forget everything I said up to this point. Just appreciate that your life has come to this moment. All the causes and conditions, non-personal, that brought you into being, that brought everything into being, the life that moves inside of you and moves inside of me, everything has come to this. You can let go into the stream of life. You don't have to help the Dharma along. Fight with the Tao or with the flow. Just enter into the stream by easing yourself into the stream right where it touches you. You are not just in nature, you are nature. So feel that nature of heaviness or hardness as your tush touches the cush. The touch of your hands, your lips, your eyes, the weight of your body, the element of fire, the temperature, the Water, cohesion, earth, heavy, hard, air, vibration, breath. Letting the body be breathed as it is all the time. And then if sensations call your attention to graciously receive them, If sounds arise, let them be known and fade away. Moods and emotions. And finally, thoughts and images. If thoughts become stronger than the breath, just note inwardly, ah, the thinking mind thinking. Notice what happens to the thoughts. And when they're no longer predominant or compelling or passed away, Connect again with your body and your breath. You may become aware of the thinking mind as thoughts are emerging in the middle of a thought or after it's passed. doesn't matter. Whatever moment you wake up to, the fact that the thinking mind is thinking, that's a moment of mindful attention. That is the key. Putting our trust in awareness so that we can bear witness to our unfolding present moments. So be aware, lucidly aware, anchoring attention in the breath, but then equally open to and welcoming of any experience that becomes stronger than the breath. No need to look for other experience, settle back into the simple experience of this breath, this moment, And only when something moves to the foreground of your awareness do you graciously receive it. Everything is changing. Everything that is changing all by itself is a selfless process. Not me, not mine. This I am not. 
just this moment.
Remember, no need to strain or struggle. Awareness is natural. We simply gather awareness to what is predominant. Relaxed, interested, kind attention to this moment. Nothing to do about what's presenting itself and nothing to undo. Everything is changing and selfless. Let the entire process happen on its own, springing up and falling back like waves. Notice how everything vanishes and then reappears. Again and again, time without end.
is there awareness right now? What are you aware of? And how are you relating to your what you're aware of or what's the attitude of mind? Are you deluded, lost, straining to make something happen, resisting? Or relaxed and open to life as it's presenting itself? Aware with clear comprehension.
So at this time of the day, the, the mental strength, even though there may be some momentum to the attention, the mental strength can tend to diminish a little bit and you may start to, and your body may start to hurt. You know, we're not used to sustaining this posture for as long as we have. So the tendency is to get a little restless, to get a little tired, to get a little, to get a little, um, um, reactive and it is a fertile ground for what we call a multiple hindrance attack <laughs> where you want something that's not present here you don't want what is present here you get restless and agitated then you get exhausted you have sloth and torpor and then you start to have doubt and if you have any one of those five things Desire, aversion, restlessness and agitation or worry, those are all the same. Sloth and torpor or doubt. Those mental states often are ground zero, you could say, for the extension of the mental state itself, the the world of, it becomes all about me. It becomes all about me and my day and my retreat and my afternoon. And it's within those little reactions of mind that we build the house of self. So if I'm sitting here minding my own business and I may have a little uncomfortable moment, but then I, into my mind comes the thought of the end of the day when I can go to the pizza parlor. <laughs> that thought of pizza arises associated with a pleasant feeling. That is depending on your association with pizza. <laughs> Everybody's feeling tones are different based on their conditioning. But the pizza enters the mind, the liking of it enters the mind, the pleasantness of it followed by liking and without any prompting at all, especially if I'm unmindful, the liking is followed by, I want that pizza. Present, present company, present experience is actually preventing me from getting what I want. So I start to get a little aversion to where I am. But I'm so focused on that, on that pizza that my whole identity, I am the one... In my, again, this is all in our mind. Nothing's happened. That's the amazing thing. But in my mind, I have constructed the identity of somebody 
who has braved this retreat, who's come from the past, who's moving through this retreat on my way to the pizza parlor. And the secret to happiness is the pizza. So that, that sense of myself in time is what the Buddha called the second noble truth, the cause of distress, the cause of tension, the cause of anxiety is the chronic habit of wanting things to be different than the way they are. Such that that state of wanting colors my present experience in a way that tells, that I tell myself I can't be happy now. My happiness depends on conditions. So that whole world of the imagined seeker, and in this case, I'm just seeking pizza. But in the the hidden aim, the end of the rainbow is I want the relief that comes from having had the pizza. It's not usually we think that it's the object of our desires that makes us happy. But what really makes us happy? What makes you happy when that bell rings? What makes us happy is the passing away of that wanting and waiting. So instead in practice of of making that whole identity of the one who's going through time real, the object real, we try to notice, oh, this is desire. Desire is not self. It's a state of mind. Objects are endless. We just try to be with that experience that's presenting itself. And in that way, we step off of the wheel called the wheel of becoming, the wheel of bhava. There's bhava becoming toward a sense pleasure. There's bhava trying to become a great success. Again, all those things, we'll keep going to the pizza parlor, keep seeking success. But we step off the wheel of having our well-being dependent on that. Again, so it's not giving up the things of this world and everything that needs to be done in this world, but it's stepping off the wheel of postponement. Does that make sense? We don't have to wait till the pizza party, pizza parlor, (laughs) to be happy. Nothing can make us happier than we are fundamentally. So when the Buddha sat under the Bodhi tree and Mara came to visit, Mara is the is the personification of that voice in our mind that says, you know, you'd be better off trying to, trying to help the world. You'd be better off with, with some food and some pleasure and you would, be, you would be a lot happier if you just gave up your search for a reliable refuge for freedom. And the Buddha, after having seen the flow of consciousness enough after having been, been affected deeply by seeing the reality of sickness, old age, and death, and the reflection that everything that we tend to chase after to give us relief also is subject to, to, to passing away, he had seen it and he said, Mara, I see you. You're not going to get me off my cushion. Says the, he put his hand on the earth. He says, that I deserve to sit here to wake up, the earth is my witness. I'm not 
going to lift out of this moment to find relief. And as he stopped reacting to everything his mind told him, as he saw the arising and passing of things, his mind got brighter and brighter. And yours gets brighter and brighter if you keep training this this present attention. And as his mind got brighter and brighter, it became much less attracted to or averse to whatever came through his mind. And he began to feel this joy, this joy of a well-being that didn't seem to be dependent on getting anywhere, becoming anyone, uh, didn't, de- didn't seem to depend on whether there were pleasant thoughts in his mind or unpleasant ones, pleasant sensations in his body or unpleasant ones. He began to sense the freedom is not so much in what I'm experiencing, it's in the, my mind's reaction to it. And as he rested in that, in that equipoise, that joy of equanimity, balance, this kind of heart opening, opening to everything, impartially, his mind relaxed and opened anyway. And he realized, oh, the reliable refuge I've been searching for is none other than the nature of my own mind. My, the nature of my own mind is unconditioned unconditional well-being. And he woke up out of that dream that I need something or go someplace to be happy. Something else has to happen some other time. He came out of the view that we become lost in day in and day out, the view of time. It's called Sakaya Ditti, views of self are often views of time going from the past, passing through the present, on the way to the future. That one who is passing through time doesn't really exist. There is only always this present. So he he went to find his friends who he'd been practicing with before, who were really his sincere friends, and especially the ones who were willing to to do extreme things to be free, even though they were misguided because they basically starved themselves and they... They just made themselves crazy and weak and tired, but he knew that they were sincere. So he went and talked to them. But before, before he went and talked to them, he let out a song. This is partly the source of the title of the day. Because he saw in his, in his practice, in his moment-to-moment practice, he saw the way his mind un trained, kept creating a house of self that was traveling through time. But he sa- So he let out this song and he said, through many births in the wandering on. So he born into those ideas of ourselves again and again. Through many births in the wandering on, I ran seeking but not finding the maker of this house. The house of self. O house builder, you've been seen. You shall not build a house again. In other words, I'm no longer going to be deluded by your whatever my mind tells me I am. O house builder, you've been seen. You shall not build a house again. Your rafters are broken, which is considered um, um, defilements, you know, these tendencies of mind. Ridge pole destroyed, ignorance, ignorance, 
And we fall into three kinds of ignorance. We take what's impermanent to be permanent. We take what's unreliable to be reliable. And we take that which is not self, not me, not mine. We take it to be very personal. It says, oh, house builder, you've been seen. You shall not build a house again. Your rafters are broken, ridgepole destroyed, mind gone to the unconditioned, to cravings cessation, to that incessant wanting things to be other than the way they are. That's faded away. Free. Done is what needed to be done. So the first part of our practice is to the first freedom, you may not appreciate it as freedom, is to make a shift from simply being carried along by our house of self, our views about ourself, our ego, what I want to happen, my ideas of what makes me special, those things that I defend and protect, those ideas, from being carried along by those ideas to being able to recognize that's just ego. That's self. And that self that, that I imagine myself to be is actually selfless. Ego is egoless. It's another appearance in my consciousness. Does this make sense? Ego is another thing to be known. Not a problem if you notice it. If it goes unrecognized though, you wander a long time in virtual reality, in an imagined version of yourself that's always going, always needing to get somewhere to be okay. So it, this is a, a passage from a fellow named Jeff Foster. It's entitled Humility as Nothing to Defend. I find truth it expresses a certain kind of freedom. I find truth in anything anyone ever says about me. So nobody can be my enemy. Call me a fraud, I can find it. Call me a liar, I can find it. Call me a failure, I can find it. Call me unreasonable, un- irresponsible, ignorant, deluded, full of ego, totally unenlightened. The worst being in the world, I can find all of it. As consciousness, I can find anything. Like you, I have nothing to hide, nothing to lose, and no image to protect. Every possible facet of human experience is available here. This is truly the end of war. It is the end of protecting and defending a mirage called me. So next time you get triggered by something someone says to you or about you, ask yourself this. What am I defending? This inquiry is the key to unimaginable peace. Deep gratitude to anyone who has ever given me any kind of feedback. (laughs) His name is Jeff Foster. Humility has nothing to defend. So Bhante Gunaratna says it's a skill. Meditation is the skill at seeing through the hollow shouting of your own impulses and piercing their secret. They have no power over you. It's all a show, a deception, 
Your urges scream and bluster at you. They cajole, they coax, they threaten, but they really carry no stick at all. It is all empty back there. You give in out of habit. You give in because you never really bothered to look beyond the threat. It's empty back there. There's only one way to learn this lesson, though. The words on this page won't do it. But look within and watch the stuff coming up. Restlessness, anxiety, impatience, pain. Just watch it come and go. Don't get involved. Much to your surprise, it will simply fade away. It rises, it fades away. As simple as that. There's another word for self-discipline. It is patience. So that simple shift from being carried along by the cajoling of our mind to noticing it is the beginning of the process of seeing through that self-illusion. So we've been spending a lot of time in our life hearing about the, the terrible, egotistical, terrible thing called an ego and that you have to stamp it out, crush it out. But the fact is, it doesn't really exist as a thing, as a separate place. But it is the display of our mind. And it is a necessary display of our mind. It is necessary in the sense that all of us, through our innocent conditioning, have developed a view about ourselves that is based on our, our cultural heritage, our race, our traumas, our successes, our failures, all those things that make us unique and individual. It's our story. It is the, is the sense that we have of where we belong or don't in this world. But it is a partial truth. It reflects things that happen, but it cannot capture the indescribableness of your nature. So the shift is to be able to see this is this view of self does it, it's this is ego it doesn't it's useful it's functional but it doesn't really it's it's not me it's not my ultimate nature I don't know if that, any of that made sense it's kind of, I'm just kind of sharing it one moment more So when the Buddha says oh house builder you've seen you've been seen you shall not build a house it really means you, you will no, I'll no longer be deluded by my story. And just a simple example of this. In one of my more deluded states, I went to India to visit a teacher. Some of you heard this story before. And when I went to see this teacher, I became, uh, I ate something and I became quite ill and I, I was just, discharging from every possible opening and <laughs> couldn't not have been more uncomfortable, slightly delirious. And the, the teacher, I, I was staying across the Ganges River from the teacher and he heard about my plight and he sent me some cheese and <laughs> I don't know why, but he, he asked about me and finally after a day or so, I started to feel a little bit better and I went to see the teacher I dragged my body along the, the sides of the Ganges River. I had to cross a bridge and I was just dragging my body along. I was still feeling really miserable, still quite ill in some way, but well enough to go see the teacher. And I finally got to the little street where the teacher was and 
I saw a little vendor, a vendor who was selling bananas and I bought some bananas and that whole process of buying bananas seemed like a big deal. And then some monkeys jumped out of a tree and took my bananas. And the whole thing was very intense for me. And I finally made it to, to the house where the teacher was. And I had to climb a couple flights of stairs and I sat down in front of the teacher and he looked at me and he said, um, said, how are you doing? And I looked at him and I said, well, I'm feeling much better, but I'm still sick. And he looked at me and he said, where is sick? And in real time, I couldn't find the identity of sick. I couldn't find I am sick. All I could find was some symptoms, some awareness, presence. And all of a sudden, this surge of vitality. I didn't realize that I had incarnated in the thought, in the view that I am sick. And that didn't mean all all the symptoms went away but I had burdened the symptoms with the overlay, the oppression of turning it into an identity view that was unrecognized. Once I recognized it, the apparition of the self-view, no big deal. There were symptoms, but it was no longer me, no longer mine. It was just what's happening. Another slight version of the story. What time are we supposed to stop? I'm for. Oh, I'm so sorry. Can you hang out for five more minutes? So the next thing that happened with the same teacher, actually before this, see, I'm a slow learner, so I had to have a couple different experiences like this with him. I had done a lot of practice. I'd probably spent three years of my life up to this point in silence, doing extended periods of practice, three, four months at a time, and, and just done a gone to a lot of retreats with a lot of teachers and had a lot of experiences and this and that. But I wasn't, um, wasn't satisfied. You know, still looking for the, the answer and some answer didn't, that I didn't even know I was looking for. But I was at a point in my life where this line kept floating through my mind over and over. Because, and it started to feel like a living reality. And the line was, and you hear it commonly in the Hindu tradition, the Advaita Vedanta tradition. The line is, the, the seeker and the sought are one. You heard that before? The seeker and the sought are one. And I've been talking about it today. What we're really seeking is the, the one who's seeking. That we're not. That we don't need to leave this moment. So, so I'm. I'm feeling this. The aliveness of this. The seeker and the sought are one. And I'm. I'm just feeling so alive with the Dharma, with life and the truth. And yet I'm. I'm feeling this very strong impulse to go to India to visit this teacher. And so I go to India. And so the first conversation I have with the teacher in the same trip where I got sick, I said to him, I, he said, why have you come here? Natural question. I said, I know that the seeker and the sought are one, but I've come halfway around the world to see you. 
So I must want something from you. And he looked at me, got this very impish grin on his face. And he said, remove the seeker and remove the sought. The very moment he did that, not knowing that I had unconsciously incarnated as a seeker, a new view, another view. In that very moment of him saying those words, remove the seeker, remove the sought, I went completely unconscious. And the next thing I knew, out of the body, what woke me up was this laugh that I heard a laugh and then realized it was coming out of my own mouth. And having that whole identity of seeker and sought kind of dissolve, there was simply the ever-present wakefulness and clarity. I had one of those kind of matrix-like experiences where everything just went... (laughs) And other than that little sick interaction, I could hardly give rise to a thought for a month. Just immersed in, in that which we, each of us, can awaken to. So this identity view, this house that ego builds, is very subtle. So when you think about yourself, you may not realize that you're actually incarnating in a, in a second-hand version of yourself, a virtual version. And you may be missing the simple reality of the present moment where you're not so easily defined. Where is the seeker right now? Where is the sought? Where is sick? Where is whatever it is that you chronically identify with? So that's one part of the teaching. Because it doesn't really exist substantially, that seeker, that sought, that one who's sick, because it's an idea, If we don't know that, we tend to try to defend and protect and build up and even enlighten that imagined one. And we try to secure it by hooking it to our body. Our body is insecure. We hook it to our moods. Our moods are insecure. Our thoughts are insecure. Our roles are insecure. Our resources are insecure. Everything about us is insecure when it comes to trying to hook our identity to something in name and form, anything that is born and dies, or ideas. And so our whole identity is inherently shaky and insecure. And out of that insecurity, what do we do? We don't just feel it. We don't let ourselves feel shaky and insecure. We immediately fill it up with distraction. Fill it up with another identity. Fill it up with defending and protecting and building. So this, the title of today is to say, it's not your fault. This is just human beings being human, trying to defend and protect a mirage. And it's left you tight. It's left you in a state of fear and insecurity and what that's, what's needed, what your organism needs to accommodate all of that is mercy and kindness to love that house that ego built, to love every part of that, 
that developmental process in every part of your delusion to just treat yourself not with disdain and then compound the feeling of unworthiness or whatever it is that you've incarnated as, but to meet everything with kindness. So that's, that's it for my end. I hope you love the house that Ego builds again and again and again. And it's been a great joy to be with you today. And please practice every day because every single moment of mindful attention, you step out of that identity view and you find what you really are on present evidence. And you'll find that it's, you're not as bad as you think. <laughs> you're not as bad as other people think about you. <laughs> I'm just <laughs> Anyway, forgetting everything we've just said, I would like to, if you have felt any benefit to being here today, as they say in the tradition, if there's been any benefit, any fruit, any goodness, any merit, any blessings that have arisen from our practice, we want to, because we realize in our in, innermost nature that we're, we don't ex- exist apart from each other, we want to offer freely the benefits of our life and our practice to everyone with a wish that everyone can have happiness and peace and the causes of happiness and peace. That everyone can be free of suffering and the causes of suffering. And that all beings can feel safe and protected from inner and outer harm that all beings can have health and strength and accept our limitations with grace and that all of us, without exception, can have ease in our hearts and a sense of well-being and be able to meet our joys and our sorrows with equanimity, serenity. And may our practice be for the, and life and work be for the benefit of all beings. May all beings be touched by our practice. May all beings be free. May you be free. May I be free. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And thank you for your generosity. Much appreciated. Allows me to keep doing this. You take care of me. I take care of you. I take care of you. You take care of me. It's, that's how it works. So thank you again in advance. And, and also, I'm going to also be signing books for anybody who is interested in, in doing that. It's a... Uh, a just for those who are interested in the book, it's, it's good for anybody to remind, I think, anybody to remind you of the life of the present moment, but it's especially useful for people who are relatively new to meditation, stripped of its, it's not, doesn't mention Buddhism, it's mostly just about reality and makes it very accessible and simple. So if you are so inclined, please feel free and I'm happy to sign one. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.